It's your boy Roshan Gomez. You are listening to another episode of the Rumor Roy podcast. And today in the house, um, I have a special guest. Uh, this might be the first time I'm actually nervous to do an episode because, genuinely, though, I am a fan. Uh, so before I say anything else, our guest today is Kyril Embaha, uh, better known as Kai. He's uh, I don't know where to start, man. You're a podcaster. You're a movie maker. You're a script writer. Uh, apparently, you're also a skateboarder, uh, <laughs> film camera. Uh, guy <laughs> i do a lot of shit hey what's up man <laughs> um and yeah and the reason why i'm a fan is because um yours and i think two book nerds talking were the first two podcasts i started listening to in malaysia oh yeah and i think uh when i first started out i i listened to TB- tbnt first mm-hmm. and then i was thinking oh you know malaysians are doing podcasts and i love podcasts i, I love uh listening to interviews so like let's why you know I, i'll do it I was thinking, what would I do? What would I do? Then I'm like, you know, I like geek stuff. I like geek culture. So maybe that's something I can do. So I was just like, I wonder if anyone has done geek podcasts. I'm sure there hasn't. The scene is not that big in Malaysia. And <laughs> Google, first thing that comes up, geeks in Malaysia. <laughs> the damn name taken. Then I was like, ah, man, maybe they're not so good. Check out the episode. Freaking British sounding guy leading the podcast. They have a. They have three people. They have a diverse uh, panel, <laughs> multiracial, multi-sex panel. I'm like, screw these people, man! And they have to be good <laughs> in what they do. Go suck balls, <laughs> Oh man, yeah. Oh boy, your reaction is um, <laughs> like your reaction is almost similar to when we first started off, and then um, because Makiap and Fry started way before us. Right, right. Um, so then uh, the, the muck part of McCap and Fry's, uh, Ian McNally, <laughs> like he's jokingly like on social media, like these motherfuckers, we're the first geek podcast. <laughs> like we're not trying to take the throne away, buddy. <laughs> okay, so, so, so sorry, we got a little bit cut, but you were telling me about uh, the guys who came before you. Oh uh, yeah, McCap and Fry's, um, yeah. which is actually a podcast run... Um, my friend Gavin Yap, a uh, great actor, writer, and director uh, himself, um, and his friend Ian McNally. So Ian was jokingly on social media, like, who the fuck are geeks in Malaysia? We're the first, god damn it. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, yeah. But yeah, I mean, I consider you guys OGs, man. You guys been in the podcast scene for like ages now, right? To quote hipsters, we were doing it before it was cool. So <laughs> in Malaysia, at least, because I was a huge, I'm like, I am a huge, huge fan of uh, Kevin Smith. Like if, right. if you swing this camera around, there's a giant print uh, of Kevin Smith that uh, my co-podcaster, Amelia Chen, uh, got from me from uh, London Comic Con. Right. So it's a signed picture, which oh, I shit. blew up. Yeah, and it says, Kai, where were you? Which is fucking painful because like, I, I couldn't afford to go, goddammit. So it's like, 
right there in front of me. Yeah. In front of my computer screen. Um, yeah. And yeah, so we were listening to his podcast and stuff. And that's how we ended up, uh, you know, doing the podcast. I actually started off doing podcasts with Amelia. Um, first was for uh, my movie Relationship Status. Um, because it was around that time, uh, Kevin Smith was doing uh, this movie called Red State. Yeah. And that's was, a horror, horror kind of. Yeah. Yep. It's uh his it was his first uh, like really horror type movie like a thriller, um and he was doing all the marketing via podcasting, and live shows, mm. so that was very inspiring. And so first I started off doing a podcast, um just about the making of uh, relationship status before it came out, and interviewing some of the cast, right. um, which I don't even know where it is right now. Uh, and then after that, um a mutual friend of ours, um, Michael Chen was starting up a website called Wham, We Are Malaysian Made. Mm. And um, we thought, okay, well, if this thing needs content, me and Amelia, you know, could do a podcast and just talk about Malaysian made stuff. Right. So it kind of started with that. And um, Wham's not really around too much anymore. Uh, but the podcasting, like um, the joy of podcasting was <laughs> like, you know, planted there. Yeah. So, and it was Amelia who was like, uh, we, we always joke that Amelia is this uh, person who just drops an idea in my head and then is like, walks away. And then the idea just is just stuck there like, that wouldn't be, a, that would be a good idea. So she was the one who was like, we should do a Geeks podcast and then walked right. away, you know? Right, right, right. So we, then that's how Geeks in Malaysia popped up. Nice, man. Nice. And, but I mean, it, it takes effort to sustain it. It is? Yeah, I mean, we took a pretty long break because right. uh, our co-host Nick Doran just disappeared off to Singapore <laughs> to go work at Legoland. Uh, <laughs> Did he really work in Legoland? Yeah, he worked at Legoland. Wow, <laughs> nice, nice. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, uh, um, and then when he came back to Malaysia, that's when we kicked it off again. Yeah, I mean, you mentioned Kevin Smith. Okay, I have to confess, I'm not, and that's why I was a bit like, I felt a lot of trepidation talking to you because I'm not much of a movie guy in the sense, I'm like a layman movie dude. Like, I've not watched anything like avant-garde. You know, I'm not like... like I mean, that's <laughs> the thing as well with like Kevin Smith stuff. It's not like he's an avant-garde, like, uh, you know, he's not like an Inarito or anything. But right. his movies um, are almost always rated 18 <laughs> and swear uh, filled with swear words. Even though there's nothing visual, there's no like, not, not too many tits of violence, but there's a lot of right. really just, I, you know that's where I learned my, like really crafted my swearing, you know? <laughs> so I honestly don't think any of his movies have ever come out in Malaysia. I, okay. So to be honest, the only reason I know Kevin yeah. Smith is more because he's like one of the kings of geek culture, right? Yeah. Him, no, because you have like comic book man and he hosts a lot of stuff. He does yeah. a lot of stuff with DC. So yeah. it's kind of like he had like this second uh, career as more of like a TV personality. Yeah, you know, yeah. he's appeared on Big Bang Theory countless times, and sure. you know other shows as well. So, yeah, I guess for mainstream non-sweary people, that's where you discover him. Yeah, it's uh, like him, um, Patton Oswalt, um, Patton Oswalt as well, Will Wheaton. Absolutely, you know, these guys are like kings of the geeks, lah. Right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I did in college. I heard about because uh, uh, I studied in the UK, so I did hear hmm. about. Um, I think at the time Dogma had just come out, if I'm yeah. not mistaken, and uh, so I've heard because that was a controversial one. If mm. I remember properly, like there were people protesting at the cinemas, the Christians, and all that. So that's actually my introduction to Kevin Smith. <laughs> <laughs> that was actually it was, I thought it was awesome um, 
there were people protesting uh, dogma in his hometown. Right. So he went to protest with them <laughs> <laughs> and ended up on the news. And they're, they're like, you look a lot like the director. Like, no, no, we, we don't like this movie. <laughs> <laughs> what, what about Kevin Smith movies did you love or do you love? I mean, to kick it off, like, like a lot of us, I discovered him first as a filmmaker. And um, my film journey started in the 90s because... You got to like, if you look at it in terms of film history, like Hollywood film history, the 90s was this really interesting time of uh, low budget indie American cinema. And it's not like they hadn't had it before. Like John Cassavetes was a pioneer, obviously. Uh, Roger Corman, uh, even um, what's his name? Um, the guy that does trauma films, mm -hmm. you know. Uh, but for the most part, low budget was relegated to like, this is only going to travel here and nowhere else. So you look at the 90s and, um, you know, for better or for worse, for that Miramax era, you know, and Sundance era at that time, you had Tarantino, Kevin Smith, uh, Robert Rodriguez, mm -hmm. uh, Richard Linklater, all these people popping up with super low budget films. Yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah. Um, and Kevin's uh, like, so I was studying a lot of these, you know, just because I discovered them. So I just wanted to find out more. The whole idea of, you know, shooting with what you have really appealed to me because, um, I mean, background wise, I really came from like ever since I was a child, like the idea of taking what you have and then making something out of it mm -hmm. as opposed to, you know, um, I'll give you an example. Like, let's say, you know, I, uh, I'm also a musician, right. And to discover punk music, uh, was incredible, not just because of the music, but because of the attitude, the way of doing it, the same with hip hop. You know, these are all musical genres and blues and uh, rock and roll. These are all early rock and roll, were all musical genres based on what you have. You know, you got a shitty guitar. Fine. It's fine. Yeah. Right. And then with these guys, it was like the punk rock of movies because you look at Kevin Smith. We can rent this camera. We can shoot in my convenience store that I work in yeah. and we'll get this done. And his writing was so brilliant. Um, the reason why I'm still like a hardcore fan to this day is because it moved on from the filmmaking and the writing and into how he just handled his career in general, mm. you know, because this is a guy that um, was very, uh, one of those very early adopters in social media and the internet before that. Yeah. Um, so you'd see like, Oh, I can, I can check out, um, you know, the Kev uh, Kevin Smith's website and check out all these other things that are going on. Oh, he's just signed on to reply to all these comments on comic book news, um, you know, and where people are just insulting him and he's insulting them back in the way that only he can, <laughs> you know. And then um, it was because of him that I discovered what podcasts were, because yeah. I used to love buying Kevin Smith movie DVDs because of the film commentary. Right, right, right. right. You know, most film commentary would be, you know, like, and then we shot this with the 35 million, the da 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 da. And, and uh, when you compare that to, I think the first uh, DVD commentary of his that I heard that I just laughed out loud is, um, and you should try and find it, is the commentary for Mallrats. Mm -hmm. Because Mallrats failed in the cinemas. Right. And then a bunch of years later, after everyone had kind of gotten a career, yeah. they released the DVD with a commentary. So you have Kevin Smith and Ben Affleck and, you know, uh, Jason Lee and the producer, uh, Scott Mosier and Jason Mewes. And they're all there ripping into the movie and each other's work. 
Like, it's just listening to Kevin Smith, like, take the piss out of Ben Affleck and Armageddon, you know, <laughs> and shit like that. So you start like going, wow, these guys can really talk. So when they started a podcast, it was like, wait, I can listen to them talk every week about stupid shit. <laughs> and that's how I discovered podcasts. Like podcasts were the first thing, um, one of the first things that I'm just listening to and started laughing out loud uncontrollably and it was actually kind of dangerous because you know you listen to it whilst driving or going around klcc and then you crack up laughing by yourself everyone's like hey what the hell is wrong with this guy you know yeah 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 so and it was it's it was a very interesting format because it's not like talk radio where you know you have an ad break you know you have to you know pimp out a song it's just people talking so there's a degree of intimacy that you otherwise wouldn't get right yeah it's it's like listening to an uncut interview you know what I mean? Um, like another, and I love listening to interviews that are really well done because of the insight that you get. Yeah. Like one of my favorite shows is Inside the Actor Studio. Oh, yeah, me too, man. Me yeah, too. There you go. I love it. Yeah, yeah. If you listen to like a podcast I've done in the past where people ask mm. why I got into podcasting, mm. so I normally credit like the, uh, Craig Ferguson. Uh, he mm. oh, he Craig Ferguson is a brilliant host. I fantastic. miss him so much. Exactly. I. I just, until, you know, I still watch his stuff on YouTube until today. Oh, yes. Absol- and, especially if he has a Scottish guest. Yeah. Like if Ian McGregor <laughs> comes on, you know, then it just goes off the hook. <laughs> he, look, Robin Williams' best interviews were with Craig Ferguson. Hands down. Best. Oh, I don't no, know. The actor studio one is really good. Okay, okay. Let, let, let me caveat that. I think ah. in terms of um, back and forth, in terms of back and forth banter, no one, I think Craig Ferguson has been the, is the closest I've seen anyone actually keep up with Robin Williams. Whereas with inside, <laughs> with inside Actors Studio, it was more like James Lipton just James Lipton just sat down. You go crazy. <laughs> you do what you have to do. You take you take that pink scarf and you go mad. mad. <laughs> <laughs> but I love the Inside Actors Studio again because it wasn't a cut. I mean, they do cut it a little bit, but mm. it's still pretty long form. And so yeah, that but, oops, oops, but um. Yeah, like, that's the thing with Inside the Actor Studio. Like, uh, a lot of them are cut for that half-hour slot. Yeah. Right? Yeah, yeah. But then the Dave Chappelle interview. Oh, yes. That yeah, one yeah. felt like, you know, like, that was about an hour and a bit. Yeah. And then you find out the actual interview is five hours. You're like, yeah. can, did you tape all this? Can we, can we have it? <laughs> you know? <laughs> and can we take a moment to just recognize that I remember watching that, and that was before Dave Chappelle made his comeback. That, that time, was, yeah, yeah, no, that, that was, was before. That, that was a time when um, you know he disappeared from Comedy Central, uh, yeah. gone to Africa, and I think James Lipton was the only one that got a like a really insightful interview because yes. the Oprah one sucked. It was shit. Yeah. It was oh, shit. that that one really made me go, man. He came off really Dave. superficial. Yeah, you're hitting Dave, and then later on you you know screwed up ludicrous on your show. <laughs> like, what is wrong with you, woman? <laughs> Yeah, oh, but gonna then, be nice to Meghan Markle. Fuck you. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, I thought we were not supposed to talk about anything controversial, bro. How's that controversial? Oh, it's the man, British no. royal family. <laughs> and if y'all no. want to know my views on that, I'm down with the Queen. <laughs> <laughs> no, it gangster is gangster as fuck. <laughs> <laughs> it is a little bit controversial, just because the moment you say you use the hyphenate racism or anything mm-hmm. to do with race, it becomes controversial. Oh, I'm not talking about race. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm just talking about that was a shit interview and you're a shit interviewer. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I think she didn't really ask any follow-up or intriguing questions, right? It was 
Uh, she, yeah, again, very think, superficial, like you yeah. said. She said it. She said in the beginning that um, we're not friends. It's not a paid for blah blah blah. She's trying to say that she's gonna, you know, it's a fair and unbiased interview. But it yeah. didn't really come off that like that. No. I mean, the only um, time, the only interview of Oprah's that, that I kind of enjoyed was uh, she did one in the '90s with Michael Jackson. Um, mm. And that was just good to see because it wasn't an interview in the studio. They went around Neverland Ranch and I was a huge Michael Jackson fan at the time. So it was like, oh shit, this is what his house looks like. Yeah. You know, and it was, it was weird. The superficialness worked because I don't think you can get Michael Jackson down for a serious, deep interview. I I, I I don't think, I don't think any interview would be, you would be able to unpack Michael Jackson. Like he's, he was just too complicated yeah. a person. So you Larry say you're no one. <laughs> so you're no you're you're no longer a fan of Michael Jackson. I'm not saying I'm not a fan of Michael Jackson. I find it okay. Now these might be controversial views, mm. but all right. When it comes to Michael Jackson, it was is that weird thing because I am I do believe that um, the shit that you did, right? Some of it can affect your perception of the art. And sometimes the art is so good that it doesn't affect it. You know, um, when it comes to cancel culture and all of that stuff, I am not a big fan. I mean, well, obviously, based on my generation, they would assume that I would be thinking this way. I'm not a big (laughs) fan of just like, oh, shit, someone did something wrong. They are canceled for life. I'm like, I've done some stupid shit. Everyone in the world has done some stupid shit. And with social media, you cannot hide your stupid shit anymore, yeah. right? And certain people need to be canceled, like Harvey Weinstein. That was a dumb motherfucker, yeah. right? At the same time, you know, does that mean you stop watching every single Miramax film that came out during his tenure? Because for better or for worse, he did, his company created all these, uh, what do you call it, careers. And all those people as well, they don't like, all this shit that's happened, yeah. you know? So those movies still stand up. You can't blame him for that. And the thing I, like, I talk about this with my wife, like Michael Jackson, it always felt like once the controversy, because the controversy has been there the whole time, sure. you know? So once everyone's like, is he really doing this shit? Is he doing that? What the fuck is going on? And then he comes out with another album and everyone's like, shit, this is too good. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. You know, people... Like, people can forgive your past discrepancies. Now, the thing with Michael Jackson is, it's that weird thing of like, he's dead now, so we can't get a definitive, yeah, I did that shit. Right. Right? We have his, uh, you know, and I don't want to victim blame, I don't want to take sides. Yeah. But his art stands up, all the way up until dangerous. Right, no, history. History, even. Um, It's once his blood on the dance floor, that's when I tuned out. Um. (laughs) You know, and I again, mean, you, it's, it's can, one you, of those you, things where um, you see like Blood on the Dance Floor isn't as good as an album and the controversy continues because the album wasn't good enough to make <laughs> you forget. Whereas with yeah. R. Kelly, like that is a different case because I'm finding it hard to listen to R. Kelly now. Yeah, that's because R. Kelly's lyrics um, intersect yeah, take with it, the things he did, right? Yeah, it takes a, like, at first I thought, you know what, the music's too good. Mm. And then I'm listening to, so I thought, okay, I'm going to try and listen to Bump and Grind. And the opening line is, my mind's telling my, me no, but my body's telling me yes. And you're like, ah, no, I can't. Oh, no. Fuck. And then I'm like, okay, no, Ignition remix. And then he's talking about drunk girls. And you're like, 
ooh, where is this song going now? It, <laughs> like, you don't listen to Dan... Okay, maybe Dangerous. Um, but you don't listen to, like, um, Smooth Criminal. Right. And, you know, there's not a line in there, like, he was only six years old. You'd be like, oh, shit, no, fuck that. Yeah, yeah. Watching yeah. Moonwalker is tough because it's Michael with a bunch of little kids. Sure. And sure. he turns into a car and they enter them, which is very strange. Yeah, I, I think anything with that kid, what's his name, that, 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 that child actor... Sure. Uh, Macaulay? Macaulay? Macaulay Culkin? Yeah, 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 yeah. Ah. Anything with him is a bit weird as well, right? Macaulay, I, okay. I, it's, I don't, I, haven't, I didn't follow much about the whole Macaulay thing when it came mm. to Michael Jackson, but I find it weird that his brother's a better actor. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the one in um, Scott Pilgrim, Kieran? Yeah, 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 yeah. He's good. Like, yeah, yeah. he was really good at Scott Pilgrim and a bunch of other stuff I've seen him in. I'm like, damn, you're yeah, better yeah. than your little brother. <laughs> <laughs> I, think, I think we need to be able to separate the art from the creator, right? There's yeah. been a string of problematic creators that go back to the early, I don't know, 1700s, 1600s, right? Yeah. I mean, you've got great classical compo- composers. Oh, yeah. That are oh, I mean, right now you have the Dr. Seuss thing going on. Sure, but that right? seems a bit much in, it is. My, I mean, in my estimation. To now. me, everything is within context, you mm-hmm. know? Like there are certain people like... Um, okay, a good example would be... Okay, in the past year, of course, there have been a lot of Me Too's happening, right? Past few yeah. years. So I'll give you two different examples. Uh, the first one is uh, Louis C.K. Sure, sure. Right? You know, I was a big fan of Louis C.K., I still am, and man. I still am. I find it a little bit tough now. And the reason why mm. is because of his response. Okay. Okay. Fair. You know what fair, I mean? Fair. The second I read the response, it was <laughs> like, oh, you did that shit. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, well, I don't try to hide this with, like, I didn't understand it was wrong. Like, then you were a dumb motherfucker. And I thought, okay, you okay. I, I, I want you know to I mean? I, I hear your second guy. But I have to say, mm-hmm. I feel that the problem with Louis C.K. is that we lump him together with Harvey Weinstein. And I feel that I feel the things that they did were quite different though. I don't though, that's the thing. I mean, there's I, a difference I, between like I don't I, I see them as two completely different cases because to me Harvey's a monster. Louis is just dumb. I would say weird, la, weird sick. It was I a mean, weird, it was a weird sexual propositioning, la. It's like it is strange. And you know, when you hear Dave Chappelle's like stand up about it, you're like, you kind of got a point on this one. <laughs> You know, so that one is like reading it like, uh, because you have to do this, buddy. Because the fact is, and I'm going to come off as victim blaming, but I really am not. I I sympathize that I can understand, you know, when people are two different stations in life, one may exert some power over the the other. Mm -hmm. But to be fair, I guess, um, I'm sure that he had done it to girls or women, sorry, and he had got it like Sarah Silverman. Mm. Right. So Sarah Silverman did an interview where she said that he would do he would do that. You know, he would ask her, can I jerk off in front of you? Sometimes mm. she would say yes. Sometimes she would say no. Sarah Silverman said that she had to later apologize for saying that because everyone took that as her victim blaming, mm. meaning that other women should have also said no. Right. Fair enough. Yeah. Separate discussion. But I'm yeah. just saying that in his mind, probably it was just that you can just say yes. No, I'm not violent. Right. I mean, that's the thing. You have to think about the idea of, I've been talking about this a lot again with my wife, actually, the idea of, uh, you know, the more you become a celebrity, the more of a bubble you're in mm. and the more you lose context of 
actually normal interaction. Yeah. You know, like uh, Chris Delia is a Chris Delia, who I'm a huge fan of, is also sure. another example, right? But the the point <laughs> I'm trying to tell you, he's what he's shady as heck. That <laughs> one as well. The response, I'm like, what the fuck, bro? <laughs> you know what I mean? But yeah, then yeah. you you put that in comparison. One of my favorite writers, uh, like. Uh, you know, like if you gave me like a top five writers, this guy would definitely be in a top five. Warren Ellis, right? Right. Yep. Yep. His response to me was fucking mature. Mm. You know, mm-hmm. because his response was, in uh, like this shit is going down. You don't need to listen to me. You need to listen to these women. I'm gonna get off the internet right now because this shit needs to be sorted out. Mm. You know. Mm. Yeah. But it's you know it's uh, what do you call it? Accepting it, realizing he's wrong, telling people like, I am the last fucking person you should be talking to right now. It's the victims that you should be talking to. Yeah. Right? Like to me, he handled that very maturely. James yeah. Gunn handled his shit very maturely. James, even Gunn, though, had, James Gunn had a thing? Oh, yeah. Like, uh, remember he got um, fired from Marvel? Did he? Or some shit. Twitter shit? Yeah, yeah. Because it was old, old ass jokes uh. from, from back in the day, which were really, really off color. Right, you know, right, right. like the Kevin Hart Oscar <laughs> Oscar scandal. Yeah, so something gone. like that. And yeah, he handled it very maturely. Like this was wrong. I apologize. I understand Disney's uh, decision, and I'm going to take a break for a bit. Mm-hmm. You know, so it gives time to for people to settle the fucking problem, right? Right. And right, still right. accept the art. Mm-hmm. Like you, you look in comparison to that. This one is a tough one for me. Uh, Woody Allen. Oh, Woody that Allen's one is tough. That one's a tough one because. Like, again, writing, because I'm, above all else, I'm a huge fan of writing. Sure. Right? Sure. Woody Allen's writing, like, Annie Hall will always be one of the top 100 best movies of all time. Sure, sure. You sure. know? And his writing is so unique and so him. Yeah. Right? Um, at the same time, I can't deny some of this bullshit because, some, you know, even back when you were just dating your stepdaughter, it's like, bro, yeah. I know, but bro... Come on. But he, his, one, his one is really, really tough. And I, I have no sympathy for him just because at the moment it touches or goes to minors. Yeah. It, for me, it's like, no, man. That's, that's a big no. And so I, I, I almost can't, like, I think Louis C.K. has a redemption arc in this whole thing. Okay. I don't think that... For Woody. Woody, I don't. But again, I can still appreciate the art without condoning the behavior or even supporting yeah. him. But I do, I do realize I need some time away from it, mm. you know, before I can get back into it. Because he's the lead in so many of them, and yeah. he's dating young women in so many of them. Right. You know what I mean? Like, you watch the ones from the 2010s, and you're still like, you are still dating young people in your movies? Could you please get a proxy for yourself? <laughs> they can sound like you. Like, you even made Scarlett Johansson sound like you. It's <laughs> fucking... Get someone else to play your role. Yeah, I watched a movie he did with uh, Timothy. Uh, uh, I always pronounce his last name. Shamali, Shalomali, Bailey, whatever. Timothy Shalomali. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I watched a movie with him, and I think it was, if I'm not mistaken, which one's that? Was that a recent? That had to be a recent one. It was a recent one, actually. It was yeah, a recent one. It was a few recent. years ago. Uh, but yeah, it, it 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 he was not acting in it, but you mm. could feel the Woody Allen vibe. Yeah. And then in that modern context, you really see, oh, okay, I get the whole, I can really see the wooden, Woody Allen-ness of this, yeah. this film, right? 
Like even in Midnight in Paris, like having you know Owen Wilson there, like yeah, you know, it's a little bit easy to get into. But if you wanted to try and watch Mighty Aphrodite, you'd be like, "Ooh, this is tough." Mm. Uh, oh, okay. <laughs> I don't know, man. I don't know. It's it's tricky. But you know, to end, okay, another level of the problem is, I mean, we we can't really Im- sort of retrospectively impose our values. Yeah. You know, like okay, for example, one of the great like mother of all feminists, right? Feminist icon mm-hmm. is uh, Simone de, uh, de, de Beauvoir, right? Mm-hmm. And she's a big time. She's like really the uh, godmother of feminism. Mm-hmm. Um, and she was uh, a good friends or lovers with another famous existential philosopher, um, um, Sartre, right? Or, or Sartre, however you want to pronounce that. Jean-Paul Sartre. Correct, right? Mm-hmm. Both of them used to... Uh, seduce or you might argue coerce their young female students to have uh, whatever threesomes or or whatever sexual Mm. orgies they were partaking in right and that's all but no one cancels either one of them that's the thing you you have to take into account that's to me like one of the problems with cancel culture when it goes to things from the past Mm. right is you of the world at that time sure you know, like if you want to cancel, let's say, Roald Dahl. Yeah, man. You know, it does not take a lot of research to find out, oh, this motherfucker's racist. <laughs> yeah. Right? But then look at the context. Okay. He was a British person at that era of a certain level. Yeah. Okay. This is colonial times. Yeah. Right? Zulu wasn't far off. Yeah. You know? Um, what do you call it? Killing people in India wasn't far off. Sure. I mean, you know? they looked at them, at, at the locals or the natives, as yeah. almost not really subhuman, but beneath them in terms yeah. of... They were almost animals, right? Yeah. And you have to accept the fact that that was part of that time. Yeah. Right? Like uh, one of the, the, the big ones, when it comes to film history, you know... Before cancel culture even started, there was a lot of discussion talked about this because there were filmmakers where they were revolutionary, but their revolutionary stuff, uh, but the context of where it came from was racism. Mm. Like, for example, W.D. Griffith's Birth of a Nation. Sure. Which you can, it was, it was interesting because I was just watching the Spike Lee Masterclass, um, the Masterclass app, right? Right. And he talks about uh, Birth of a Nation. Right. Okay. And uh, how he was taught Birth of a Nation in university and how they gave no context into the world. Sorry, not even university, in high school. No, no, in university. Without um, any context of the world at that time. You know, Mm -hmm. so being an African-American watching this movie about the Ku Klux Klan Mm -hmm. and being told it's one of the fathers of modern cinema (laughs) without being given the context is tough. You need to give the context, right? Like, because, and he's talking about how they didn't give the context and da da da, and he put it in uh, Black Klansman ways, intercutting between people watching Birth of a Nation and other people, and uh, Harry Belafonte telling a story of a lynching, and right. then he caps that story off by saying, "And that cross-cutting technique was developed by D.W. Griffith." <laughs> right, right. You know what I mean? Right, right, um, right, the right. other known one is uh, I'm not gonna. Her name's too German for me to pronounce. Right. Um, but Hitler's filmmaker. Yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah. She was a revolutionary filmmaker. You look at it from a feminist standpoint. She was yeah. a female filmmaker in pre-World War II and World War II. Yeah. She was right? doing those propaganda, the propaganda yeah. stuff, right? But even if you don't watch the propaganda stuff, mm-hmm. um, 
just watch her Olympics footage, right? Mm. And you you take it within context. This is the late 30s. She stuck a camera, a tracking camera, next to the diving board. Mm. Mm. So that when they dive, she can track and follow them all the way down to the pool. Right. You know, that is the kind of dynamism and camera moves that didn't exist up until that point. Yeah. You know? And the fact that she had the full support of the Fuhrer, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> she could build this shit because he wanted to look cool. Yeah. Lenny Reifen, Riefenstahl? Riefenstahl? I can't remember. Right. So you imagine, imagine being a Jewish student having to learn this. Right. 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 You know, right. you need the context of it. Yeah. Um, so, like, with old stuff, you really need to look at the context of culture. And, and to because be there's a lot of old movies that when we watch it now, like American Pie, you watch now and like, <laughs> yo, this ain't cool. Charlie's Angels, Charlie's Angels, the early, the first trilogy, is, it is not aged well at all. <laughs> I, I mean, dude, I'll admit it. I thought they sucked back then. Um, <laughs> I was like, I, I was in primary school when I watched it. So everything, anything with good uh, action sequences was great. Um, yeah, but McGee was like... <laughs> If Michael Bay was a Transformer, McGee was the GoBot. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah, I get it. You know, um, and sometimes that context can also lead you to a decision mm. or lead you to um, formulate that irrespective of the time, that was still bad behavior. Like, mm. for example, Joss Whedon. Oh, man, that one, like, <laughs> when that hit... <laughs> I was like, because, you know, as, as a Joss Whedon fan as well, you've exactly. been slowly hearing these things. Yeah. And now it's like, it's undeniable. And especially for it to happen on Buffy yeah. is a really painful thing to hear because the amount of women I know, yeah. right, where Buffy was that calling card, it was that you are important too. You yeah. know, it you was have the, value it, too. It was the entry level for many women and also yeah. young boys to yeah. geek culture. I mean, exactly. I grew up on Buffy and Angel. Mm. And I you have to understand within the context of that time, there was no show written like that. Yeah. If you had like before Buffy, if you made a show like Buffy, Willow, Cordelia, Xander, Giles, they would not be important at all. Yeah. Right. And then you have a show like Buffy where there was one episode, well, I'll never forget, where everyone has to stop the end of the world and Xander has to go get donuts. <laughs> and he has his own little adventure, you know, yeah. Yeah, yeah. with these zombies that want to blow up the school, right? right? Yeah, yeah. And you just watch that like, no show ever did shit like this. Yeah, yeah. You know, no show was that overt about having a lesbian relationship. Yeah, below, um, right? Yeah. Uh, no show tackled... Um, Okay, so at season six went a bit too dark. Um, the the what's his name? Spike almost rape sequence was like oh, really yeah. fucking harrowing. You're like, <laughs> yo, and then Xander leaving uh, Anya at the altar. You're like, yeah, you're getting a bit too adult, Joss. Can you? Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> we need yeah. some fun again. Yeah, yeah. Uh, An angel went into really dark places. Yeah, it, well, in later seasons, like the first few yeah. seasons were still okay. I mean, come on, when. <laughs> When Angel's son sleeps with Cordelia. <laughs> but that's the thing, right? Now it makes sense because all, apparently... Yeah, Joss because of the hated, shit that you hear, yeah. yeah. So now it makes sense. Even Cordelia dying or entering mm. a coma. At the time when you're watching, it didn't make sense because she was such a great character. Mm. And she was a fan favorite, right? And now you're like, oh, wow, yeah. you would fuck up story 
just yeah. uh just because of a grudge wow and that one like at the same time it's like that one i've been able to separate the art from the creator a little bit more because the creator is not so prominent right you know what i mean woody allen is in his films yeah right joss whedon um because for me my my fandom for joss whedon is purely the writing you know right. like when i used to watch the behind the scenes documentaries i i really don't like his interviews Mm-hmm. You know, um, he didn't seem like a character that I would like to get to know, yeah. but I loved his writing. Like his run on Astonishing X-Men is brilliant. Mm. Yeah. Uh, you know, coming after Grant Morrison's new X-Men and then him taking it over. It was like, it was a brilliant run for X-Men, yeah. you know? Um, so like so, I said, like, I, I think you're yeah. right in the sense that context is important. Like even yeah. Dan Harmon, right? Yeah. Uh, Dan Harmon had a thing, right? He was, um, he, he, had made advances on one of his female staff. She mm. had like said no, and then he took it out on her, right? He used his power yeah. against her. Well, he apologizes. She accepts his apology. They move on. So in those circumstances, there's kind of like a, a good ending to it because you recognize yeah. that people can make mistakes. The guy yeah. accepts his mistakes, you know, and then everyone just moves forward. Yeah. But I, 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 and, and that's great. But I guess that they are just like, for example, that, that there are just some people where the crime is just, like I said, when it comes to children, yeah, minors and all that, I'll I'll admit like uh I'll admit it here on this freaking podcast, mm. um, some of the content in my old movies as well. I'm like, fuck me, <laughs> right? Like uh, my first movie, Cheap Lot, which is available on Kinedia for free. Yeah. Uh, so and it yeah, it's cheap as shit. Yeah. But there's no. a scene in it yeah. where there's a character who is a you know, um, a Malay boy who thinks he's black. Right, <laughs> yeah, and he's gamer, dropped, gamer, right? Yeah, and he's dropping the n bomb like a motherfucker. <laughs> and I look back at it and I'm like, fuck shit. But then at the same time, I knew people like that. That's why that character existed. Yeah. And again, with context, at that time, um, there were very few black people in the country. In fact, I don't even know in 2005 whether that big influx of uh, African refugees had happened yet. Yeah, you know, I don't think so. Oh, I, yeah, so you you would hear Machis drop the n bomb all the time. Really? And yeah, <laughs> damn. Son. Oh, okay. No, they would use the older term, um, okay. which I'm gonna say. Please forgive me. Uh, uh, they would say Negro, right? Oh, right. And if you think about it contextually, we were colonized by the Portuguese at one point and the Dutch. Yeah. Right. That word would have existed, you right. know, and they would have had no context uh, to separate it anyway. And Malays in general, you know, are kind of racist to begin with. Uh, it's kind of our culture, you know, so you have that. But then when you have the young people, they're listening to uh, hip hop. And again, they have no context. They don't yeah. know uh, what uh, the African-American experience was like. Yeah. Right. In fact, so when in they're fact, hearing. In yeah. fact, with the Indian culture, they adopt the culture. Exactly. And adopting the culture as well is something that's kind of exciting because with hip hop, uh, because, you know, like it's a lot of people in different parts of the world with very similar backgrounds and they relate to something in that. Right. Mm. But um, you need the education as well, because these kids are just dropping the N-bomb like crazy. And then you find out, no, that's not your word. You know, yeah. that doesn't mean bro, <laughs> you know. Yeah. Um, and it's only when more Africans were in the country that people realize, oh, shit, we're not supposed to say this. Yeah. You know, this is a wrong word. And yeah. But there were there were totally Malay kids back then who you know 
dressed in FUBU thinking they're the shit, yeah. you know, saying it like all the time. Yeah. Um, so, but I also look back, like I should have been a bit more responsible with that. Yeah, um, but I mean, we were kids. You know, I had a friend when I was studying in, I was studying in BAC, right? Hmm. And when I was in my A-levels, I had a friend who was a white mix Chinese, right? Okay. And we were studying with some Africans. And hmm. so we had a very nice Zambian friend, very, very cool uh-huh. guy. Until today, I've lost touch with him. He's, he was never on social media, so I, I can't contact him, but very nice guy. And so we were just talking, and she jokingly, like just without thinking, said like the N-word, right, nigger, right? Hmm. And just said it out like, like that hmm. in front of him, to him. And oh. he didn't respond. He didn't respond. But later on, when he had gone away, she was like, shit, what did I just do? <laughs> and you knew, he, he heard it. You, you, could, you could tell from his face <laughs> that he heard it, right? Oh, shit. <laughs> but he just oh, let, it, he let it slide, right? Yeah. And so it's like, again, she didn't mean any malice by it. But it's, again, that generation, we didn't really understand the context. Mm. Uh, or you needed to be really well read to un- understand understand the context. Of. Yeah, like I grew up listening to Public Enemy, mm, you know, yeah. so it was rammed down my ear because I was like, "What is he talking about? <laughs> you know, why is he so upset? I need to find out." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, hey, amen. I want also to talk- on top of that, my yeah. first Spike Lee movie ever was Malcolm X. So that was like, you know, at the age of fourteen, watching Malcolm X, you get a three-hour history lesson of the African American experience. <laughs> Talking, okay, uh, because you mentioned the word Malcolm, I've Hmm. actually been looking for people to ask this. Uh, Have you watched Malcolm and Marie? No. Ah, damn it. Okay. Uh, No, I haven't. I have not, I mean, I'll I'll tell you straight up, I have not been watching a lot of new movies. Okay, okay. That's that's completely fine. But if you by chance watch it, it's basically Mm -hmm. uh, Star Zendaya and um, the the tenant guy, what's his name? Uh, Uh, Oh, uh, J.D. Washington. Yes, John yes, David yes. Washington. <laughs> yeah, so just two of them in a hut. Um, uh, you call that a hut? Man, well, <laughs> you must be rich. <laughs> well, you that know, place, that's a hut. <laughs> it's freaking secluded. It's freaking secluded. <laughs> As directed by Sam Levinson. And I'm really, I watched it mm-hmm. and I really thought, because I don't know whether it's pretentious or whether it's actually good or whether it's walking the line really well. I'm really, really confused with that movie. I'll give it a shot. I mean, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm curious about the movie. I'm also like, when I saw the trailer, I was just like, what the fuck, Zendaya? You can look any age? This is <laughs> yeah. crazy. I think what's so freaky about it is people still have the Spider-Man image of her. And yeah, then so it feels like... Her. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it really feels like a pedophile kind of movie. You know, it really feels that way. It's so weird. But anyway. Okay, huh. I want to talk to you about your movie, Kick Flip, bro. Okay. Um, I watched it. I really thought it was really, really good. Uh, and I want to talk to you so about much. it. But I think, I really think, you can't discuss Kickflip without discussing Chipla. Okay. I really, really think that. Okay. For, for, for a few reasons. But the first being that both the characters are named Joe. Yes. Are they the same person? Yes. <laughs> and, <laughs> and in relationship status, if you notice, my character's called Joe again. Right, right, right. Yeah, yeah, I did. So and, is that... It's it's a it it is a intentional. It's again something I picked up from Kevin Smith, who was doing movie universes before anyone else. Right, uh, right. And of course, he got that from being a comic book fan. Sure, 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 sure. So when I started uh, writing my own movies, and you know, Cheap Lot was the first one, but Cheap Lot wasn't the first script I wrote. You know, yeah. 
Um, and it wasn't the first script I wrote with that character. Yeah. Uh, so whenever I was writing a script and I wanted to put a character in that was very close to me and that I would be playing, yeah. uh, I created this name, Johan Yazli, right? right? And shortened for Joe. Because uh, I just thought it was a it was a nice name that would both be um, it's it's Malay, but it also can be Westernized. Yeah, you know? yeah. it's not a difficult name. Like when when I got my degree and the fucking chancellor called out my name, I was like, "You son of a bitch!" Mokahazani <laughs> Beha, <laughs> like fuck. My mom's here, man. You know. Yeah. So yeah, um, it's this weird like. Um, I think Uma from uh, uh, Ogla. Yeah, he pointed it out. It was like the TTDI, uh, what do you call it, trilogy. Oh man, I um, love that. I love that. You know, because they're all fun. set around that. He, you know, but with relationship status, I'm more of a cameo. Uh, you know, right. but yeah, Chifla and Cake Flip, it is within the same world. Like that final scene is next to the TMB building in Tamantun. Like Tamantun right. is my studio lot, for better yeah, or for yeah. worse. Right. You know? And even uh, I noticed uh, Lisa, right? Uh, mm-hmm. I think she's your girlfriend in Chipla. That's her name. Mm-hmm. And then actually when you talk to, uh, in, in Kickflip, you talk about your ex-girlfriend also being Lisa. Did I? I think so. Yeah. If I'm not, I might be, yeah, I think so. I'm pretty sure. I don't remember that scene. Did I mention um, an ex? I don't remember mentioning an ex. Doesn't your wife, your wife say when, you know, when, when, okay, spoilers, spoilers, skip over, <laughs> but you know, where, where, uh, your character, Joe, I keep feeling like I'm talking like you are the characters. I keep... <laughs> okay, it's but... cool. You can say you, it's fine. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, when Joe comes back home and he's forgotten to pick her up. Yeah. There's that emotional scene, right? Yeah. And then she says that, uh, oh no, no. She's talking about, oh no. Okay. I just, no. Wow. Her name I is just Lisa. Realized, yeah, her name Lisa, is Lisa. But, but he's but, talking. Uh, but she she's talking about that girl that you meet later. Yes, exactly. So when I who's saw Chinese, that, exactly, exactly, <laughs> exactly. So when I saw that, it's like I watched it. It's like wait, shit! I did not meets, put those together. He, Fuck! He meets Lisa later, has a like kerfuffle with her husband, but then in Chipla, his ex is also Lisa. Who the hell is this Lisa? <laughs> so as you saw in Chipla, Lisa was, uh, you know, an onkaya. Yeah. So uh, later on at 21, she got a, she got a, uh, you know, so, she no. got a race change operation, just so, like Robert Downey Jr. No. in Tropic Thunder, because she wanted to look more Korean and then look like that. There so looking, go. so looking at Joe, mm-hmm. uh, Kai, obviously, I mean, I don't think it's a stretch to say that obviously there's a Lisa out there who hurt you really badly. No. Are you sure? <laughs> the Lisa was a name that's pulled out in order to not use the names of those girls that hurt me badly. <laughs> so she's a, a amalgamation of all the girls who hurt you in the past. Oh, now she is. Now that you <laughs> now that you pointed out, it must have been a subconscious thing. I didn't realize. Okay, so the oh, the, wow. third, the third part of the trilogy, the TTDI trilogy, has to have uh-huh. a Lisa who's a kind of a bad character. <laughs> I, I, I want to okay. see. Okay. I, I hope there's a uh, post credit for Roshan Gomez at the end. <laughs> <laughs> okay, but you know, Chipla, you know, you were talking, it's so funny when in the beginning part of this conversation, mm-hmm. you were talking about Kevin Smith. Yes. And that influence of the 90s directors. Yes. That sort of like, you know, just take out your camera, record it, the indie yes. scene. Yes. And mm-hmm. I can see it so clearly in Chipla. Oh yeah. I, I think Chipla is a seminal 90s Malaysian movie. 
you, I honestly, do. Do we have like uh, archives for Malaysian movies? Because that should go there. Because uh, probably at Finas, but they probably don't give a shit about my shit. So this movie should be there. This movie should be there because this movie really captured the nineties. You know the clothes, the way we talk to our friends, the cars. Yeah, um, everything that, about there's, there's so much architecture in that movie that doesn't exist anymore. <laughs> yeah, man. You and know, um, you, you can see Help Institute somewhere in the background of Kusabanda <laughs> Dawansara and like that's yeah. gone. When's the last time you rewatched it? Chipla? Yeah. Oof. Um, I think I re rewatched bits of it uh two years ago when uh, my friend Mian was showing it to a students at ICT. Right. So, right. you know, be there watching going, wow, standard dev looks shit. <laughs> <laughs> Pop out, come back in and be like, wow. I mean, the, the one thing, and I think a lot of writers uh, realize this as you get older and more mature, you look back at your younger writing and you go, oh, look at me trying to show off. <laughs> look at this writer trying to show off his words. But, you know, that's the thing which I think is so cool because... And that's why it feels almost uh, autobiographical, right? Because just like that character, mm. just like Joe in Chipla trying to find himself, he's copying all the characters in movies he watches. Yeah. I mean, you that, feel that this is a movie that's also trying to find itself. That, that came from, a lot of that came from uh, a thing, uh, my friend Jordan, uh, who's a VFX uh, guy, he runs a company called Voxel. Uh, they do a lot of cool shit. Um, and I'd known him since when we were in England. He was in the same boarding school as me. Um, so I've known him since we were 16. And so I think around when I was back in Malaysia, he pointed out like I was like a, a pop culture leech, you know, <laughs> because if I saw something that was cool, I'd adopt it, you know? Right. So right. people that have known me from my teen years onwards no, have known all my phases. Mm. Like I had a fight club phase yeah. um, where I basically dressed like Tyler Durden because I had most of that shit. You know, um, you know, the leather jacket with the Hawaiian shirt, spiked up hair. I had a huge Huntress Thompson phase. Right. You know, I'd walk around like Huntress Thompson in KLCC, <laughs> dressed like him from Fear and Loathing. <laughs> you know, walking into like a fucking um, Pox in a song. Jesus, what are these goddamn animals? And like running out and people be like, what the fuck? <laughs> you know, I had my skater phase, my punk phase, my rock and roll phase. Uh you know, just so many phases and I'd adopt all that. So when I was creating the character, it was kind of that as well. Like this guy is the result of the movies he loves, mm. you know? Um, and a lot of my wardrobe was based on the movies I loved. Yes. So it was like, okay, well, I'm going to be using my own clothes anyway. Yeah. Might yeah. as well, that might as well be it. And with the movie as well, it like, like you said, it's an amalgamation of things trying to find what it is because, um, that was around the time when digital really took off. So I was watching a lot of these movies shot on digital, um, on mini DV tape, and trying to see what works, what doesn't. Because um, if you notice in Cheap Light, there's not a lot of like wide shots or mm. you know sweeping camera moves. Everything's very handheld. Yeah. Uh, there was a bunch of sequences that were shot on tripod that I reshot handheld because they looked so terrible to me in comparison. Because there was something about when you're holding like those cameras and it's moving like that, it gives you a sense of realism because you're used to seeing footage like that of real events. Right, right. You know what I mean? Someone's yeah, yeah, video yeah. camera. So yeah, that yeah. motion helps to uh, kill that barrier of, oh, this is a film. 
Whereas when you put it on a tripod with that lower resolution, people, it looks like someone without the equipment to make this look good. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know? yeah, 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 yeah. That was something I learned from uh, Doug Lyman's first film, Swingers, uh, which is another movie I fucking love. Another, um, another movie from the 90s, the low, bu- low budget era, mm-hmm. where his point was, with this budget, it can either look like a bunch of people trying to make a $10 million film yeah. without, a million, or without $10 million, yeah. or we shoot it like a student film yeah. and say, fuck it. Yeah. Right. And that way to me works a lot better when you don't have money. There's no way to, if you don't have the money to make something look good, mm. it's not going to look good. Yeah. You no, know? it's so going to look like, up. yeah, it's going to look like someone who's, you know, trying to make 50 bucks look like 500. Yeah. You know, yeah. but the purchasing power is still 50 bucks. Yeah. 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 You know, so embrace Embrace your shittiness is basically what I'm trying to say. It's like a like a jujitsu move. Like you, you take uh, what you've been given and sort of yeah. turn it back and and use that force to sort of make it you know better. Yeah. Right? And you see, like the way that movie is edited, the, it's edited so frenetically, <laughs> uh, so that you don't have time to realize how shit it looks. Yeah, you know, it doesn't yeah. give you a moment to go, "Wow, this guy has really no money, <laughs> and he's a terrible actor, and this movie's shit." Because it's yeah. moving so fast. The, the, yeah, but that's why it really feels like a, a real true coming to age story because it feels, and I don't mean to say this in an insulting way, right? Okay. It, it, it feels like a movie trying to find itself. It also feels like a movie that's a little bit insecure, right? Yeah, uh, yeah you know, like a, 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 a movie that's doing, you know, like peacocking, <laughs> like, when, <laughs> <laughs> like you're just, you, you don't let that person really sit because you're too afraid, right? So you just move to the next thing and you bombard that person with so many. And the only reason I realized it is because when I compared it with Kickflip. Oh, yeah. I mean, Kickflip is a complete 180 in terms of style because, yeah. and also because to me, it, didn't, it wouldn't suit that movie, yeah. you know? Um, the way Kickflip is shot, uh, and this was figured out from the get-go, it was supposed to be that every real life had to be still, mm. you know? It's when he's on a skateboard, that's when things move. Mm. You know, that's when there's motion in his life. And it's also, that's when it's like a throwback to that early style of shooting, you know, handheld, very rough. So even with the lenses we chose, everything that was in the office or at home, they were shot with very sharp modern lenses. Mm. Everything to do with skateboarding is shot with vintage lenses, mm. you know? Mm. So um, you don't really notice it in streaming, but you notice it, you, you do kind of feel it. Because the, the lenses, the way it, it, it uh, captures the image is very different. It's a yeah. slightly softer look and feel. And so that was very thought out. With, with uh, Chipla, it's we have this one camera, right? Yeah. And this tripod seems to be slowing us down. So fuck it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, it, you know, I, I just love, I really recommend whoever is listening to this, uh, the millions upon millions of people who listen to this <laughs> podcast. Uh, <laughs> Um, watch this movie Uh, watch both movies together because I really think it's really really beautiful when you put it together because it's almost a type of archetypal story when put together the first is the movie of the boy who doesn't want to grow up really insecure trying to find himself not really wanting to face his responsibilities and the second ironically is still a person who's trying to find himself Mm. but now with so much more limited options I mean I mean, the second one is supposed to be more about 
the adult trying to find yourself, you yeah. know, because yeah, yeah. it's a different set of responsibilities. Chipla is a boy trying to understand like, okay, I'm a man now, yeah. you know, um, those dreams that I had, they're not exactly wrong, but if you want to make them real, you you need to make them real. Yeah. You know, um, whereas flip, uh, that is very specifically adult because it's an experience that mostly adults would relate to where you take your shot, you go for it and yeah. you fucked up. Yeah. Okay. Right? So I feel kickflip is a movie about failure. Yes, absolutely. That was the thing that kickflip was born out of the feeling that I had fucked my career to the ground. And I find it so hard to listen to because from my side of the screen, I see someone who has accomplished so much and who is clearly, you know, really talented. Dude, come on, for Kickflip, I can't believe that that opening song is your song, right? Yeah, I wrote that in uh, 2000. Uh, yeah. the, that recording is from 2000, 2001 in my dorm room on a Pentium 2 um, laptop with like 512 megabytes of RAM. Dude, that, that was a good song, man. That, I thought I thought you you flipped that from like the soundtrack of like Tony Hawk, you know, yeah. the game. And that was that was written for out of like a genuine frustration of like, my God, I'm shit at my skateboard. You know, I went to a skate park uh, somewhere in I can't remember. Uh, I think it was called PlayStation. Yeah, it's a skate park that's built under uh, a tube line bridge. Mm. It's pretty awesome. Mm. But I went on like a beginner's day and it was fucked up. I'm just looking at everyone like, I can't do this. I'm yeah. going to break my neck. <laughs> I feel stupid. You know, <laughs> it was a lot of insecurity. So then I wrote that song because I was like, fuck, man, I want to skate. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but like, like just from this side of the screen, you, you look, I mean, I perceive you as someone who has accomplished so much. And so for you to produce a movie ultimately about failure, it just seems... I don't know. There's like, I feel like I'm missing something or there's a disconnect here. Well, it's, uh, I mean, I talked about it um, on my YouTube channel. Um, mm. There's, there's one vlog that's just about that feeling of failure. And a lot of it is because in the 2010s, after relationship status, I thought my career was going one way. And mm. for the longest time as well, as a filmmaker, here's the thing you have to understand. Like when you start in Malaysia in the 2000s as an indie filmmaker, right? Yeah. The reaction from the industry, the Malaysian film industry, yeah. is good for you, but that's not a real movie. Right. You know what I mean? Right. Like, and I was lucky enough to be able to transition to television, uh, mainstream television at a very early point. Um, but at the same time, I was always having to prove myself, you know? Right. And a big part of that is because even though I was proud of what I did and I knew people who dug it um, within the industry is like, Oh, but you haven't made your master's money. Mm. You know what I mean? When you're doing mainstream, basically your success is measured by how much money you make for the studio box office. That's it. Right. Full stop. When it's TV, how many views when it's film, how much is the box office? Right. right. Um, and after relationship status, you know, things were really looking up and uh, what do you call it? it looked like my career was going a certain way where maybe I would finally, you know, be accepted in the mainstream industry. Yeah. 
Sure. You know, not necessarily to the audience, but to the industry, because I didn't like that feeling of being, to use a Malay term, the anatirikan. You know, it's right. like, oh, that's good. You made a little movie. Good for right, you. Right. So you, like, you like a fe- child. You were yeah. feeling accepted by the people who are consuming, but you didn't feel that acceptance from your peers, your contemporaries. Yes. And especially around that time of relationship status, like, also, for some reason, a lot of people were talking shit about me at one point. It was like, wow. Right. And I was in a very different mindset. I was in, the, in this mindset of, fuck all y'all. Mm. I'm going to show you what I can do. Right. right. But here's the thing that as I got older, I realized, like, when you get into that mindset and that is your motivation, that is not an honest motivation to create art. You know what I mean? Because the only thing that's going to make you feel validated is the box office, yeah. right? And the thing about film is that as much as studios think that they can predict whether something's going to be a big hit or not, nobody fucking knows. You know what? There's no science. You can just, you can, you know, like, you, you see it with the movies that are coming out now, like, oh, look, you know, Marvel put all these people together and it worked and they made billions. Yeah. So we're going to do that. And they do it with two movies and it fucks up, right? Mm, mm. Because the intent isn't correct. Mm. You know, it isn't coming from a place of truth. And my intent wasn't coming from a place of truth. I just wanted to prove to people that I could be profitable. You mm. know what I mean? I wanted that acceptance like, okay, sekarang awak pengarah, you know? Mm. And it wasn't going to happen. So first I did, um, so around that time, there were two movies that came out that were quite Was it Chua? First Chua which right. was probably the toughest film I've ever done in my life. Okay. You know, because it's five directors doing separate things that need to be connected. Right. Editing that movie took a year, just editing it. Because right. when we edited it to, obviously once we get all the dire- other directors' storylines, um, we've done a rough script of how they can all intercut. Yeah. And then I, I, I haven't watched Chua, but is it like an anthology? Or? So here's the thing. The thing we wanted to do with Chua is to flip the whole anthology thing around. Okay, right. Michael Chen was a producer who came up with the idea of this. And then I started coming in with the idea of like, look, instead of going, here's an anthology of four directors. Here's director one, two, three, four. Right? We say, okay, we're all talking about the same character at different points in his life. You shoot this. You shoot that. You shoot this. Who's interested in what? Right. So someone's interested in the early dating time. Someone else is interested in, um, you know, the couple as a relationship, just talking about the relationship and converting. And I, my segment was about the bachelor party he has before the wedding. Mm, mm. Okay. Things like that. So, and then we're going to intercut these short stories together. So it's not going to be the whole 20 minutes of this and the whole 20 minutes of that. You're going to have five minutes of my film. That's going to cut to 10 minutes of Tony's film. You know, that might cut back to two minutes of mine that goes back to Manish, you know, and then go to Shamane, Yeah. right? So there's a way of doing it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But you couldn't really figure out how to edit it until it was shot because we wanted to give all the directors the freedom they had. So even after we got picked up by TGV to release the film, mm-hmm. after they watched it on their screens uh, to test it out, even after we got picked up, me and Michael were like, you know what, if we move that scene to there it'll be tighter. So mm. we're still editing it like months before the movie came out, like a year, year and a half of just trying to figure out this jigsaw puzzle. And I was also part of the company that released that movie. So for me, there was a, 
a lot riding on it in the sense that I wanted to prove to even my own shareholders that we can make an independent film and mm. we can make bank. I wanted yeah. to prove to the industry that we can make bank. And that's the thing. My other, my other partners were not thinking that way. Right, right. Who art was meant to showcase what we can do, mm. right, in terms of creativity. And I was thinking about it in terms of the box office. So when the first weekend figures came in, I literally broke down. I was a complete wreck. I was in a ball on my sofa, crying my eyes out because all of that work, you know. And when you step back and think about it logically, it was impossible. We only showed in eight screens. Yeah. You're not going to make over a million bucks in box office showing on only eight screens mm. when there are huge blockbusters coming out. It's not happening. Right. You know? And my other partners knew this. I just, it was a real thing that I wanted to get to accomplish. You know, yeah. Yeah. I wanted to show that indie films don't have to be considered non-profitable, right? Yeah. So then when, so there was that, which really affected me very, very badly. Mm. Then there was Showdown, which was the first time like, I was finally offered a mainstream film by a studio that I figured I could pull off because I'd had a few offers here and there, mm. but they were films I didn't want to do, you know, but Showdown was about, you know, breakdancing and... I grew up on hip hop, you know, mm. I grew up on hip hop amongst many other genres, but I especially remember I was a kid when I first saw breakdancing on video, mm. you know, it was like a new segment, the new dance craze that is taking <laughs> over, blah, 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 <laughs> uh, where they spin on their heads, I'm like, Ooh, you know, so I thought, okay, I could pull this off and at the very least, because I'll admit it, the script was generic. It was a by the numbers, you know, studio movie mm. uh, for the local market. Um, and it works, you know, there's nothing wrong with that formula. If it works, it works. But I knew it was something I could put my touch on because of the dance sequences, which we worked a lot on with Pat Ibrahim. And that was my first, uh, mainstream film with a mainstream workflow, uh, a big crew, you know, um, shooting the finale in, uh, Stadium Nagara, you know, um, and that was like, on the one hand, it's this huge, huge thing. Mm. And on the other hand, uh, you, the first thing you discover is there are problems that you can't fix the way you can on an indie film because it's not yours to fix. Meaning? You know what I mean? Meaning, okay, for example, uh, let's say there is, um, okay, let's put it this way. If I was making an indie film, right? Yeah. And I need a wardrobe the certain way, Okay being someone that doesn't have money, right? I can try and ask for sponsorship, you know, and explain why we can't pay for that thing because we literally have no money, mm, right? Mm. Me as the filmmaker, I can go and do that myself. Mm. Now, if you're a studio, you're doing a studio film, right? Let's say there's a, you know, a form of wardrobe that they don't have that the, uh, or there's not enough money for or whatever, right? That is now no longer my call. Mm. You know, there is a level of hierarchy, you know, you every, per yeah, every transaction, every purchase, every approach to uh, possible sponsors, you know, there's a responsibility there. And that responsibility should be on the studio. I'm the director. So is the bureaucracy, though? I mean, it's the bureaucracy, uh, but I mean, like, I, the bureaucracy is one thing, but it's also just the, the way the workflow is. That's mm -hmm. not my call anymore. You know? Right, right. Because right. coming from an indie background, you know, 
if a a line in uh, Dolomite is my name, where Eddie Murphy goes like, mm. you know, I got no airs about this. If a box needs to be moved, I will move that box, <laughs> right? Right, right, right. You're on a studio film. Even if you're a crew and you move that box, if you're not in the, okay, this isn't done so much in Malaysia, mm. but for the rest of the world, like especially in America or UK, if you're the sound department and you pick up film crews, uh, you just help them lift a box from point A to point B, mm. you could get fired. Damn. Right? Either you, could, you, either you get fired mm. or the insurance for the crew is null and void. Right. And someone not from that department did something that that department is supposed to do. Right, right, right. You see what I mean? Yeah, and yeah, yeah. it all makes sense. It's all there in place to protect people, right? Mm. And to make sure everything is uh, transparent. Mm. But it is a very different, uh, what do you call it? Environment to be in when you're used to indie film because now there are problems that you cannot fix personally. Mm. You can only ask them to be fixed. And whether or not people have the resources or not to fix them, that is another issue. Mm-hmm. Right? Uh, you look at the finale for Showdown. The last half hour of Showdown was shot in two days. Mm. That's in a stadium with a crowd and three full dance sequences. <laughs> right? All right? And we had two days because that's all the budget allowed. Mm-hmm. Now, that's just... That, so that was two 21-hour days right. right? for everyone. You know, dancers were vomiting because Yikes. of, like, you know, the, the physicality. and Because the, the finale, uh, one of the, yeah, the heat, the final dance sequence as well, they're wearing traditional sea light clothes and doing break dancing, you know. And that is, people don't realize that shit is tight. Yeah. You know, so a lot of the, it, it was, and it's stressful and you have, like, you know, we're cheating with it, so it's only a hundred extras. But uh, yeah, have you ever tried to corral a hundred people? <laughs> you know, did did you get any pleasure from doing that movie? I did. Like, you know, I like. Here's the thing: I always enjoy my time on set. Okay. Okay. You know, being on set is fun, and the showdown set was fun. It was right. definitely fun. But you also realize one thing: I realized was it took me a long time to make friends with the crew. Mm. You know. And I realized it was because of the, the, the work culture when it comes to film um, at that level. You know, mm. the director is very separate from everyone, mm. you know, to be revered. And I'm like, bro, I could not record on I could record You know, but you go smoking area and then the crew would be like sheepishly finishing their cigarettes and they walk away. <laughs> because yeah, they're like, yeah, oh, yeah. it's not appropriate, you know, for this second grip to be smoking with the director. I'm like, dude, it's fine. Come yeah. on, dish some shit on the other people. I want to know. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> so it was a very weird working environment, but, and, um, you know, the intentions are very different. But at the same time, it's like, we're getting to shoot some cool shit, you know? Mm. Um, shooting huge dance sequences is fun, mm. right? And being able to play with all these things and being able to work with Pat Ibrahim on the choreography and working with the dancers and everything, it was fun. You know, um, it's just, yeah, when that movie came out as well, and that one had like a labored like post-process. So it came out a bit later than it was hoped for, uh, for issues I can't talk about. Mm. Um, But when it did come out, it was at this weird period where it couldn't really be promoted as much as I thought it should have been. And it wasn't promoted to the audience that I thought it should have been. Right. It was very promoted to mass. 
And to me, it's like the first people you have to promote this to and that you have to have this support from is the hip hop and dance community in Malaysia. Mm. First and foremost, like you have to kowtow to that. Um, and But instead, they wanted to go more of like, we got to make sure that this movie makes bang. So let's, you know, go to Jom Hebo and tell everyone about it. Mm. Right. Mm-hmm. And I'm sorry if you're like, you're, you know, a 60 year old Machi from Klantan, you're not going to give a fuck about this movie. Yeah. Right. Yeah. You know, yeah. like aim it to who you need to aim it for. So it's weird. Showdown was a weird movie where I can't say it flopped and I can't say it did good. It just existed. Mm. Like it made okay in the box office. Okay. La. Can la. It existed. People know it existed, but yeah. it didn't make any waves. So um, it, 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 sounds, it sounds like Chipla was your entry to the film industry. But, absolutely. But, but there was a lot of insecurities surrounding the release of that film. Those insecurities. Chipla? Yeah, Chipla. Meaning, meaning that you know, you're, getting, you're still not getting the respect that you wanted. Oh, no. Your- with Chipla, there were no insecurities until after it. You know? Right. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that, that's yeah. what I mean. So it's that, that you put out that movie, mm-hmm. and then after that, you realize that you're, you're still not you're still looking at getting the respect of your contemporaries. So you're sort of chasing this. Yeah. After a while, at first, at first, I didn't give a fuck about it. Right. But somewhere around the 2010s, 2011s, as my career is progressing, it's also like, hey man, why can't you find any value in the stuff I've done? Mm. you know what I mean it, it was this weird because you're still like oh but that's like a little cheap movie in a DSLR oh yeah. but that's you know you playing with your friends it's not a real movie and believe me I'm not the first person to get this um, even those people that I mentioned in the 90s mm. uh, in America mm. you know like a lot of their first films because they look so rough now that's not a first film you mm. know what I mean so then, so, so then yeah. you do these big films and you realize that doing the big films is also not as what it's you expected a, it to be it's, it's like, um, I thought by finally doing a big mainstream film yeah. that you'd, I'd finally... You would feel legit. Yeah, legit and considered. Right. You know what I mean? Right, right, right. Right? But there's another fucking Kai Baha around who's more considered than me, so... <laughs> <laughs> oh, God, man, that, that's funny. Do you that's know how funny. many fucking grab drivers are like, hey... I'm like, fuck you. I had that name before him, and that's my real fucking name. Fuck you. Man, that's tough, though. That's tough. I've, at certain points, I've actually put in my grab uh, notes, you know, additional notes. If you, if you think I'm the Kai, if you say that you think that I'm the Kai Baha that's on YouTube, you will definitely not get a tip. <laughs> I'm fucking sick of that shit. <laughs> oh man, that's so funny. Uh, okay, so kickflip. Yes. So what is kick kickflip? Is a combination of what is is a combination of you realizing that what your 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 failures don't define you. That 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 what what's the message here? Can was, can I even ask you that question? It was a uh, kickflip. Was me trying to deal with that idea of uh, failure, and it was it mirrored my life at that time because. Yeah. After Chua and after Showdown, there was this feeling of, you fucked up. Like, mm. And also this feeling of, and yeah, the industry doesn't want to work with you anymore. Mm. Like, let me put it to you this way. In the past five years, I get hired more as a cinematographer or an editor than I do as a director. Right, right. right? Flat out, you know. Um, 
<clears throat> and from a work standpoint, I don't mind that because there's more work in that, mm. you know? But at the same time, like, okay, so I'm not even considered as a director. Mm. You know what I mean? Um, and even like my cinematography and editing, people are shitting on. So I was like, fuck, I can't win either way. Uh, but at least I'm getting work. And during that time as well, after those two movies, I wanted to take a break from writing uh, my own stuff for a while. So I started doing YouTube videos and stuff like that. But I was also looking at an alternative to film as uh, something to do. Mm. So I did a bunch of stuff. Like I learned, you know, I was basically trying to learn other crafts because one thing that I do like to do is learn new shit, you know? So I was like, okay, I'm going to just try and learn some other shit. And maybe there's something in there. So I learned how to uh, screen print and started making t-shirts for a while. And then... You know, I thought, okay, I'm going to start skateboarding again. Mm. Because, um, and the thing that kicked that off was just like in the movie, like a lot of skate shop, a lot of skate companies started bringing back their old designs, mm. you know? So yeah, I went, walked into a skate shop and um, I still remember it. I was going to buy uh, rollerblades for my wife mm. as a birthday present. Cause I know Who we have to also talk about in a minute. Was that? Who we also have to talk about in a minute. In a minute, yeah. <laughs> um, so I went to uh, Wheel Love and, at that time in Subang, um, you know, to get at these uh, roller, roller blades. And whilst I'm there, I'm like looking over to the right and there's a hookups uh, skateboard, a cruiser skateboard. Mm. Um, and hookups is a brand that I'd always known from around the 2000s, uh, started by a skater named Jeremy Klein. And it's always these manga uh, drawn chicks Mm. Um, in a variety of poses on the board. Like you couldn't, you couldn't miss him a mile away. And I just love the artwork. So yeah. I was like, oh shit, I'm just going to buy that for the artwork. And after a while, like I'm riding that thing, you know? <laughs> <laughs> and I started slowly skateboarding again and it helped. And I even started a skate company with a friend of mine called Scarlet Skateboards. Oh, nice. Uh, so we were actually making our own skateboards, getting them manufactured in uh, China and selling them uh, based on designs that we both liked. Um, and it was just something to try out. But getting into the skate community in Malaysia again after so long was a lot of fun because it's so welcoming and inclusive. You know, I would go to Shalam to skate almost every night, right? Because um, they have really cool concrete bowls there. And, you know, the age difference made no difference. You know, everyone was welcoming, like, be hanging out, you know, I'd basically be hanging out with PMI and SPM kids and nothing felt <laughs> weird about it. You know what I mean? Because yeah, yeah. you're a skater, I'm a skater, cool. So a lot of that experience, uh, it just made me go like, I want to make this movie because this is something you don't see. And it was also something that at that time was beginning to happen. Because if you look at it historically, skateboarding as a thing started, as a proper thing started in the late 70s. Um, you know, onwards, right? Yeah. And really started blossoming and becoming an industry in the 80s and considered yeah. as a sport. So you have a bunch of kids from the 80s who used to skate. Then they grew up and got jobs and figured that's a childish thing to do. And, you know, as opposed to midlife crises where you buy a Porsche, mm. suddenly they're like, oh shit, those boards from my childhood are still around. <laughs> yeah. So it was happening around the world a lot where 30 and 40 year olds were just getting back into skateboarding. Yeah. Right. And you saw there's, there's even a brand called tired skateboards, which I love. Mm. I really love to get a board of this because they market 
specifically <laughs> the people that used to skate, yep, right? Yep. And thought they were too old to skate anymore. It's like, nope, you're not too old to skate. Check out yep. this board. Um, so that was happening a lot. And the thing that really started clicking with me was that idea of, you know, skateboarding, like number one, more than anything, it's not really a sport because sport suggests competition. Yeah. Right. And whilst you can compete in skateboarding, it is not the be all end all. It's a community. Uh, not even actually more than that. It is an individual pursuit. Right. Mm -hmm. Like that last scene in the movie uh, yeah. where he's just skating by himself. To me, that was really important to show mm. because that's what skating is 90% of the time. Mm. You know, you're just somewhere that just has a flat ground and you are repeatedly doing the same thing over and over again until you can get it right. Yeah. Right? And I wonder whether, and it's really, dude, it's really, really beautiful because uh, doing a kickflip is sort of a metaphor for life. True. Uh, I mean, a lot of people have been pointing like that out, but uh, to me, it, like that came from, that is a very skate culture thing where the, your level of progression, suppose you learn how to roll on a skateboard, right? Then the first trick that you usually try to learn is the ollie, where you make the board jump up. Yeah. Because that is the, 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 the foundation for every other trick after that. You know, if you want to be able to do all those things that skaters do, you better learn how to make that board fly. Right. Yeah. So once you get the ollie down, the first trick that anyone learns after that is the kickflip. Right. Yeah. And it's this rotation. And it is the one that any skater, like that is the one that kicks the ass more than an ollie. Yeah. Because you, like, it's literally like, it's the same thing as the other one, except I got to do this one thing with my foot, but I have to do it so fucking precisely. <laughs> you know what I mean? And in terms of muscle memory, it's a very confusing thing to do. Yeah. Right. So as much as that, like, on the one hand, it has like a lot of people are like, is the kick, is the term kickflip, you know, metaphorical, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> but to me, it's also like, it's that, it's that barrier that you have to get out of the way. Yeah. You know what yeah. I mean? And full disclosure, I still haven't landed one. Yeah. <laughs> right? You know, my, my dream yeah. was to land one on camera for the movie. Yeah, I was waiting, I was waiting for yeah. it. And I was in my mind, I was thinking, how long did they have to? How long did he train to do this? <laughs> how, how many shots did they have to take until he got that final, final kickflip? <laughs> like the problem with that was, here's the, the background that most people don't know, is mm. that that final scene... Because it's a indie film, and what I do with indie films, I don't shoot them all together. Like, like this week we're shooting three days, next week we're shooting two days, and sometimes separated by months. Right. So at the time when we were shooting that last scene, this was right, like literally the day after I was di diagnosed with a slip disc, and oh, nerve shit. damage, and nerve damage in both my lower spine on my uh, and on my uh, neck area as well. Right. 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 And it was incredibly painful. Yikes. Right. And also for the movie, and I'm pretty sure this is why it happened, because already as an editor and someone on the computer all the time, I slouch, right? Yeah. All my life, I slouch that. But also for preparation for the movie, I didn't want to, I wanted, I wanted my character to really look like he hadn't skated in a long time. I wanted him to look heavy yeah. and stuff like that, but with the muscle memory still there. Yeah. And I'd been skating for like four years again. Mm. Uh, so I stopped like once I, once I written a draft that I knew I was going to use, I stopped. So I didn't skate for about a year. Right. And what that does when you've been skating regularly and then you just suddenly stop, 
a lot of your muscle just weakens like within the month, right? Mm. You know, like my legs would shake when I walked down the stairs right, because right. the muscle isn't, you know, it's not strong enough anymore. And so, yeah, like uh, I was having a lot of pain, couldn't even sleep, went to a chiropractor and they're like, yeah, your, your back is fucked. <laughs> Um, you can't do any physical activity for the next year. We need to fix all this and da, da, da. And I'm like, okay, I'm making a movie about skateboarding. I've got one scene to do. I just need to get this scene. And he's like, finish that scene this weekend, but next week we have to start your treatment. Mm -hmm. So I had one night to get that scene. Damn. Right. And on top of that, at that time, I was very heavy in some job. I was editing a lot. So I wasn't being very active. It was, wasn't sleeping enough. Mm. So the take that you see in the movie is the one is like the last take because I, mm. I couldn't jump anymore, you know? Damn. And I really, you know, like if I had time, I would have loved to have shot that sequence in color. Right. But, you know, it's just, yeah, I was physically drained. Like that was the last you were going to get out of me. Um, and I needed to edit that film. So I was like, okay, you know what? I've got something I can work with. Let's just go home. But I think I honestly like that it ended that way because I, again, I, I might be reading too much into this, but I really did take that kickflip as a metaphor for life and how it's an endless pursuit, right? It's doing something that's really arbitrary, really doesn't have much outer significance, but you do it over and over and over again until you get it right. And that journey never ends, right? Yeah. I mean, the, the whole point of kickflip as a movie is that most of the time when we fail, we think that's it, Yeah, you know? And that's why, to me, skateboarding was such a great metaphor because failure is part of the process. Yeah. There's that one given? scene where yeah. he keeps falling off. Uh, yeah. He keeps falling off over and over and over again, right? When he's trying to do that slide. Oh, the kid. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. And yeah, like that sequence to me, like as I was editing and I was like, I have to show every slam. I yeah. have to show, like you need to see how many times he falls on his face. Face, face forward, yes. Yeah. Yes. So that when you see him land it, you get it. You mm. know what I mean? A lot of people, when you see skateboarding, a lot of times you see the trick. Mm. You don't see the hours that were spent beating your body up to get the trick. Yeah. You know, so to me, like, that was really important to show, like, this is what failure is. Mm. You know what I mean? Like, if he stopped after that first bail, that's it. He's never yeah. going to land it. So yeah, you fucked up your photography studio. Okay, you fucked up. Now get back up and do it again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But that, that was, and it was also like, I make, you know, to write that, it was also very cathartic for me because it was me telling myself as well. Like, okay, you've fallen down, now get the fuck back up. Yeah, there's a, you could feel the, the love in the film. I think that's what really stands out. It's, it's really intimate. There's a lot of intimacy. Again, you have to watch Shipla with it because certain things you do are exactly the same. Like even the ending, it ends on a, you don't know what the ending is for both Chipla and also for, for Kickflip. I love that. And I realize a lot of people don't. <laughs> like, I remember the first time I did Chipla and this, uh, my friend's girlfriend like came up to me and she was like, so what happened? Like, what do you mean? Did he, did he get the bag? And I'm like, are you fucking serious? You're asking me that question? I need to know, did he get the bag or not? Is his life okay? I'm like, that's up to you to think about. And she's like, I don't want it to tell me. And I'm like, wow, you can't deal with this. But I've always liked open-ended endings. Um, it's, uh, you know, because to me, 
as well like it's it's like life like life is what you make of it and um life doesn't end until you die a story doesn't end until you die yeah, yeah you yeah. know so to me like the only final definite ending you can have in a movie is like oh and they're dead yeah, yeah right yeah. so for anything else like you know and then he did this and who knows if they lived happily ever after exactly you know what i mean so even um, in kickflip we i mean again spoilers 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 but even in kickflip we don't know if hmm. he continues the the stupid job that everyone would think he shouldn't be in right we okay. don't know yeah, like here's the thing um and spoilers huge <laughs> spoilers, spoilers, spoilers but here's a little insight because i love talking to you sir uh <laughs> We shot a scene. There is a scene that definitely says he quit. Oh shit, serious? Back home, tells his wife he quits and the wife's like, "Finally." Oh you know? shit. And then he grabs his stuff to go see the kid. Okay, and, that's good. But when you saw it in sequence, it just kind of stopped the momentum a bit because you you've built up this momentum mm-hmm. of like the trucks are the wrong way around and they're dead. Do you want to be in this job? So then when we took the scene out and it just cuts to the kid. Right. It's like, oh shit, that works so much better. It did. Your brain, for a lot of people, their brains kind of fill in that gap. Because mm-hmm. when you ask people, you know, some people say that he quit. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. other people say like, oh, maybe he accepted what it is, but he's still going to skate and that's going to balance him out. Yeah. You know, to me, it's because if you, also if you give a definite answer, you know, someone might, have a differing opinion of how the person should react. Yeah, definitely. One of my favorite uh, uh, authors or even stories is Lord of the Rings, right? And uh, Tolkien is famous for not giving answers. Hmm. He keeps it as vague as possible. And if you listen to early interviews that he gave, he's like really hesitant in giving any answers because I think hmm. he appreciates the power, the agency give other people to determine the story. Yeah. I mean, let's let to simplify it in geek terms. Everyone loved the force more when we didn't know what the fuck it was. <laughs> yes. Suddenly Liam Neeson says, "Oh, there are midichlorians in your bloodstream." Like, what the fuck? <laughs> this is genetics? <laughs> it was just DNA? Damn. But at the same time, Anakin was an immaculate conception? <laughs> what? You know, sometimes an explanation isn't good. <laughs> yeah, definitely. You know, definitely. like you look at Mandalorian and everyone's like, oh, where did, how did Boba Fett and da 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 <laughs> And I remember extended universe in the books of like how he survived and it's just his armor kept him safe through the whole digestion process. And I'm like, <laughs> so the Boba Fett prequel is just him in a lower intestine going, man, this sucks. <laughs> oh man, those, those extended universe books were great. Uh, but it feels a, like a bit like it feels a little bit like a scam now, though. Looking back at it, <laughs> especially now, it's like, oh yeah, none of that's canon. Like, what? So, what am I going to do with these fifty Star Wars books that I have laying oh, around? <laughs> Amelia was pissed with that when they announced that. She yeah, like, me as well. Man. You know, when I was in I, when I was in high school, we would save up money to buy those books. <laughs> there were no small feats to get like the Darth Bane books, or it's ridiculous. Um, yeah, but now it's Clone Wars that's canon. Right? Yeah. Yeah, Clone Wars is canon. Okay. Yeah. Um, I, but I grew up with the prequels, so I, I actually do like the prequels. I, uh, I, I don't have any major, like, yeah, the prequels aren't as good, but sure. they're not terrible. You know you know why I like the prequels? I feel the prequels gave us a lot of great characters. I mean, Mace Windu. They did. Yeah, yeah. Qui-Gon Jinn. 
I mean, the, although the prequels to me, like what's from a filmmaking perspective, mm. they're interesting because to me it's like, that is what George Lucas would make when no one can say no to him. Right. Right? Right. You look at Star Wars, especially you look at the, the making of the first Star Wars, New Hope, yeah. right? You can see how many barriers he has, yeah. right? Like even talking, when they interview the editors and they're like, the first cut was fucking horrendous. <laughs> and they re-edited it and used takes that they wouldn't use and angles that they wouldn't normally intend to use, yeah. right? To craft it and make it more dynamic. And, you know, even with the costumes and the effects, there's certain things that George couldn't do, right? Mm -hmm. And then he went back and added them all in and you're like, was this necessary? This does not help the story at all. You know yeah, what I yeah. mean? Like, it's an interesting comparison to see like, okay, when he can do whatever he wants, this is what he wants to do, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So either accept it or move the fuck on because at the same time, this is, see, this is what's telling to me. I have episode one, two, and three together with yeah. four, five, and six. But the new Star Wars, I do not have Rise of the Skywalker. <laughs> Nothing about me made me go, I got to get that one too to complete it. I'm like, no, that's like Star Trek, the motion picture. Fucking no. Have you tried rewatching Star Trek, the motion picture? Holy shit. Nah, man. No, no, I have not. I, I am wiping with Discovery though. I think Discovery is good. I think after Discovery, just try and watch. Because Wrath of Khan is brilliant. Try and yeah. watch the first one. Yeah. You literally sit there going... Did you just want to make an enterprise screen screensaver? It's just the ship moving very slowly for like five minutes. Spark going, it's not logical. And then it moves a little bit more. It's, it's so slow and boring. It's ridiculous. You know, I haven't watched the, the last Star Wars. Uh, um, what's the one that uh, I mean, just came out? Uh, just came out? Movie? I mean, okay. the, last, the last of the, the sequel trilogy. Oh, uh, Star Trek Beyond? No, no, no. For Star Wars. Star oh, Wars. Star Wars. Yeah. Yeah, Rise of the Skywalker. You haven't Rise, seen it yet? Yeah, Rise of the Skywalker. No, I didn't even bother going to watch it after the, the second one. It was bad, man. No, here's the thing. Okay, and we might differ on this. I love the second one. You did? Oh, yeah, wow. because it's ballsy as shit. You know what I mean? It is someone daring to say, fuck it. Let's see what else is out there. <laughs> no, man. And to me, no, because here's, here's no, I think this is the this is the film director part of you that uh, no, I as the, as the geek as well. I'm like, yes, no, man. more of no. this shit. Fuck all y'all. <laughs> Fuck all y'all. Last Jedi is the shit. Last no, Jedi no. is the shit. You know what's the equal of that? The equal of that is when we find out that all the books are not canon, and then you go outside your house and go, yes, fuck all. Let's burn all these books. Fuck all. <laughs> Because let's face facts, all this shit's made up. <laughs> right? That is true. That so is to true. me, like a director going, I'm going to take it in a fucking different direction. Yeah. I thought was fucking cool. Ryan and a Johnson, lot of the right? things that he does, he knows that everyone is thinking, oh, Luke just got his lightsaber. This is going to be a great moment. After all, they stared at each other for five minutes on the top of an island in Scotland in the last one, just yeah. looking at it. It's going to be a great important thing. And he threw it over his shoulder. I'm like, Yes. Fuck yeah. You're doing something different. Okay, okay. And fuck okay, everyone okay. else. The Porgs are the best creatures in the Star Wars universe ever. Why the fuck is there not enough merchandise for those guys? I want to fill this room with Porgs. Fuck that. Okay, wait, wait, wait. Did, have you finished watching The Mandalorian? I'm sure you have. Yes. Okay, then what do you think about the last episode, the Luke Skywalker uh, grand entrance? Uh, PS5 graphics, but still okay. What? You did not feel the nostalgia 
Did you not feel the? I would if his eyes move more. <laughs> and Instagram didn't spoil it for me, mother. Oh shit! Fuckers. Serious, uh? Damn. Oh fucking! Can 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 we all accept that we should at least give it a week yeah. before starting posting shit? The last episode of One Division, people posting the next day. Sons of yeah. bitches. No, I had the same problem with Game of Thrones. Uh, I had to go off Facebook. Oh, that that shit is uncalled for, man. Yeah. And they did it with Game of Thrones. It's like, come on. <laughs> you know there are people who are like literally putting themselves in a bubble yeah. to not be, you know, Especially a series like that, you know, yeah. where the, 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 the ending is so important, you definitely don't want to know what happens. Yeah. Um, but that's the thing, because to me, like, last... Okay, uh, just the one final point, Last Jedi, like... Last Jedi is someone trying something different, right? Sure. And, and fucking around with the format and giving the, the possibility of taking it in a different direction, right? And then right after that, J.J. Abrams in the first like 10 minutes kills everything sure. and says, no, we're going to give you what you love again, yeah. which in his last Star Wars movie, everyone went, oh, you're just giving us what you love. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Which yeah. I also thought was great. You know, I, I enjoyed that one too. But mm. when the third one came out, Rise of Skywalker, I'm like, no, th now this is just nothing. You know, yeah. like right off the bat, hey, I'm back. <laughs> I Al think okay. back. Let's not explain <laughs> shit. <laughs> no, I, okay. I've got all these ships that have been hiding in a clouded space that no yeah. one noticed. No, oh. so I think for me, I was into Star Wars because of the mythology. Right, that, that was my thing. You know, there are different types of Star Wars fans. They're yeah. the movie, they're the original trilogy fans. They're the Clone Wars books fans. You know, and then there's this new generation who I yeah. don't even know whether they're fans, but I think I was very much in for the mythology. So I liked when the books had uh, expo expositions on Mace Windu, Obi-Wan Kenobi. I'm a sucker for that seven uh, Jedi fighting forms. You know, I'm a sucker for all that shit, right? And so that's why I think I didn't like any of the trilogy, uh, the sequel trilogy, trilogy movies. Yeah. I, I didn't like any of it because I just feel like it didn't build on anything. And so there must be a middle ground. There must be a ground where we can have a bit of fan service and also build an original script. I don't... I, I think to me though, the middle ground, here's the thing, like, and maybe it's a controversial thought or whatever, but I don't think it is. But to me, it's like, why are we expecting the filmmakers to do this for us? Why are we expecting the studios to do this for us? Okay. At the end of the day, they want your money. Yeah. Right? That is all they want from you yeah. is your money. Yeah. Right? Now, if, but you see like a lot of people as fans, they are expecting the people that hold the franchise to give them what they want. And to okay. me, that is a, that is the wrong way of looking at it because the people that hold the franchise mm. will do what they think the story should go. Right. You know, we'll do what they think uh, these stories should be based on their own personal storytelling factors and based on the studio's expectations. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So I, to me, I think it's unfair to expect exactly what you want. You know, it's the same way, like to me, when you hear people harassing George R. R. Martin, when's the next book coming out? Yeah. Like, I heard a great story. Um, and I think it's from Kevin Smith, where he was talking about talking to R. R. Martin about uh, fans. Mm. And, you know, someone came up and said, like, uh, so when's the new book coming out? And he's like, no, I'm still writing it. And he's like, oh, do you make notes? 
of the store overall story arcs. Like, no, that's not how I write. I write it as I go along. I figure out where these characters are going to go, mm. you know? And then the guy asked, but what if you die? <laughs> <laughs> to which George R. R. Martin's response was, fuck you. <laughs> and that is the type of attitude that a lot of people have these days. They expect. And a big part of that is because we are now, you know, social media gave us all a voice for better or worse. Mm -hmm. But there was that one period where people realized, like, if I say that something's not right or something should be done about this, mm -hmm. someone might do it, mm -hmm. you know? And that gives you that, that idea of like, no, I expect this. I'm going to voice out my dissatisfaction and it is up to you to satisfy me. To me, it's like, no, it is up to the filmmakers or the creators of any medium to do what the fuck they want. And it is up to us to either consume it or not. Like, yeah. it's one of those things where it's like, just because I didn't like Rise of the Skywalker does not mean I'm not a fan of Star Wars. Yeah, for sure. But you have people that is like, after uh, the prequel trilogy, burning their fucking lightsabers. <laughs> oh, fuck this. This is not how Darth Vader comes and I'm never going to do this again. I'm yeah. going to Star Trek. Yeah. And, 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 and like, it's, it's also funny how sometimes perception changes because the prequel trilogy got a lot of like, hmm. but then now it's getting... Uh, uh, yeah, like, yeah, exactly. Right. Perceptions will change. You know, movies that from my childhood that were generally universally acknowledged as shit hmm. are now getting like, this second win. Second win, yeah. Definitely. You know, when I watch Kung Fury, I'm like, this is everything that's wrong with the 80s. <laughs> but at the same time, people kind of like it. You know? <laughs> yeah, I get it. I get, and it's I get one of the great, yeah. And it's one of the great things about the internet as well, because now whatever niche thing that you love, you should be able to find it. Mm, right? Definitely. So as opposed to asking and expecting, why not go out and look? I, I, I get what you're saying. It's a bit like uh, J.K. Rowling doing her books and then she releases a book, but you want to dictate the ending. Yeah. And it's weird because it's J.K. Rowling's story mm. and whether you like the ending or not, it's her, her story to tell. Mm. So you're just there for the ride. Uh, and whether yeah. you wipe it or not, that's, that's up to you, but it's her story ultimately. I get what you're saying. I get what it's, you're saying. It's essentially, to put it in a Malaysian context, it's like there's a really good kwetiau stall mm. in Penang, yep. right? And everyone loves the kwetiau. Yeah. And then you come over and say, you should not use that much soy sauce. Fuck right. you. <laughs> <laughs> you, want, you want less soy sauce? Go to someone else. <laughs> this is how I make my fucking kwetiau. <laughs> and yeah, there yeah. is a cue, you know? Yeah. yeah. So I, I would assume that you're completely against retconning anything now. I mean, if that's the author's intention, then sure. Mm -hmm. I, I'm, I'm against retconning for the sake of audiences. Okay, then what about Justice League? Justice League? Yeah. That wasn't his vision. Think about it. Zack Snyder made a movie. Mm -hmm. Then tragedy fell. Sure. Joss Whedon comes in to replace it and reshoots 80% of the movie. Yeah. Right? Mm -hmm. You have film cans of footage that were never seen. For one, but also you had a story that wasn't told, mm, mm. right? And if he's given the opportunity to tell it and they're going to give him the money to continue it so that he can tell it, more power to him. To mm. me, that's not a retcon. 
Mm. You know? Like, yeah, did fandom have something to do with him getting the movie out? Sure. Mm. Right? Uh, and am I excited about it? Not as much as the fans are. I'm curious <laughs> about it more than anything. Yeah. Because to me, Justice League is a great background movie. Background movie meaning? As in, you can put it on, oh, turn to it, there's some right. fun shit to watch, yeah, but yeah, you can yeah. still continue vacuuming. Yeah. I've you actually know? watched this. Like it's very hard to do that with Dark Knight. Oh yeah, definitely. definitely. Try putting on Dark Knight and vacuum your carpet. At a certain <laughs> point, you are going to put the vacuum machine down and just watch that movie. Yeah. Justice League and be like, ah, fuck like this bullshit. Okay, I'm do this. And then, oh, oh this sequence. Okay. Can, yeah. can, can. Well, that's yeah. also because Batman has a lot of uh, good dialogue, but Justice League, it's mostly action sequences. Yeah. I'm, I'm curious to see, like, that doesn't mean that I like Zack Snyder's vision of the DC universe. Sure. You know? Because to me, that is a vision of someone based on the assumption that everyone knows the classic DC universe. You know right. what I mean? Yeah, yeah. It's like doing an Earth One. Mm. Uh, no, not it's not even doing an Earth One. It's like to put it in comics parlance. Someone says, "I'd like to get into comic books," and then you give them Final Crisis, <laughs> which, yeah. as a comic book fan, without the context, you won't understand. I still don't understand that book. Yeah, I'm a Grant Morrison fan. I'm a comic book fan, and I still read it. Then again, Grant Morrison was one of those writers. He makes me read his comics a lot. Like this year, I read Invisibles the whole run for the 12th time. Oh, I'm excited for it coming out. And I understand it a little bit more, but just a little bit, <laughs> you know? So about yeah. Final Crisis, I'm still like, yeah. I no. need to know deep, deep, deep DC history. Yeah. For me to appreciate it. Even though all the crises hmm. are like uh, important landmarks in DC law, yeah you would not want that to be your entry level. You would not understand no. anything. When, and especially when you had, and here's the thing, you had something to compare it to, which was the CW, mm. which the CW felt like Silver Age comics, right? Mm -hmm. Like anybody can pick it up and get yeah. into it. But their first crossover was by the time Arrow was in what? Season three, season four? No, nah, man, much I think more, I think fifth or sixth season, man. Was it? The yeah, first because major Flash, crossover. Because Arrow, Flash, Flash and, oh, and uh, Supergirl. Yeah, not, not, the, not the Big Bang crossover, like the oh, very right, first right, right. crisis they dealt with. Yeah, yeah, right? yeah, you're right. You know, but everyone had like at least, at least one season. Most of them had two or three seasons of history before that. Yeah. So when you go into that, you accept it. Yeah. When I found out that Zack Snyder wanted to, like his vision of Justice League was, it's going to be a trilogy and then the Justice League are going to lose. Darkseid is going to control the entire planet. And then, yeah. well, I'm like... Yo, you can't jump into New Gods shit that quickly. <laughs> no, but I think that's the big problem with Justice League is that a big part of the movie is doing exposition on the characters. Yeah, to try and explain this shit so that you can get into it. And makes it really weird because thematically they're all different characters. Yeah. And so it feels really messy and really weird because you can't just paint, like, you can't just do Batman for the Batman feel for the whole movie because you have characters like The Flash or hmm. Aquaman. Yeah. And so you have to jump in terms of tone, right? Yeah. And then it just becomes really weird and messy. Yeah. And even I, I, the way that um, Batman is in Justice League, and this is why I'm curious to see how Zack Snyder does it. I want to see if it's different. Yeah. But for me, like, I'm a huge fan of the uh, Bruce Timm uh, animation, the Justice League series and Justice League Unlimited. Sure. 
and a huge fan as well of the Grant Morrison run of Justice League when he brought back the original seven, uh, yeah. six, seven, whatever. Um, but also, it's basically the idea of that the reason why Batman is in the Justice League, you know, because he's the world's greatest detective. Yeah. Like you see both of those, like the yes. uh, the Bruce Tim cartoons and yeah. the Grant Morrison Batman. Yeah. The reason why among Superman and Wonder Woman and everything else, you have yeah. this, this human is because he's thought of shit that they haven't. Yeah. He's the smartest man yeah. in the room. At all times. Yeah. You know? And then the Justice League movie, they played Batman as I'm in under over my head. Yeah. This is too much. I'm yeah. just a human. Yeah. How am I gonna fight these aliens? Are you you were supposed to have thought about this 20 years ago, just you're, in you're, case it happened. You're preaching to the choir here, man. I totally agree, 100%. Yeah. I've, I've actually and watched- And the Gillette sponsorship pissed me off. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, I've actually watched the Snyder Cut uh, because my uh, I had- uh, Hey, should you be saying that on the 14th? Um, <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going to give any details, but anyway, I got early access uh, through me. <laughs> Anyway, whatever. Uh, so, but I'm not going to spoil it at all, and I'm not going to yeah. say anything about it. But I, I do want. I would really be curious. I'm, I'm definitely going to tune into your geeks in Malaysia uh, uh, response to, to, to the yeah. Zack Snyder. Um, uh, Is it really four hours? It's really four hours. All right. I'm I watched it at night. On the toilet. I watched it at night with a, uh, from eight to twelve. Whoa. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but I think as a film director, you're gonna like it because it really does show how directors can make an impact on a movie in terms of tone. How two yeah. different directors can have. Yeah. And it's really interesting because I watched the movie and then I watched the YouTube videos of the the the, the Joss Whedon version. Mm. And you really oh now I see how much a, a role a director can how much oh, yeah. of an impact a director can make. It, it was for me the Joss Whedon one. It, the the look was a very weird choice for me because I get it, but it was just odd to me because as opposed to because all these characters have different looks. Yeah. So his choice of look became neutral. Yeah. It was kind of dull. At times it felt, but not really. I felt at times it felt a bit campy, though, to be honest. Oh, especially that opening roof shot with Batman. I was like, this is so obviously a set. <laughs> it, even worse, it it like. I mean, it's great that you're giving a head nod to 89 Batman, yeah. but this literally feels like you shot this in 1989. Yeah. And then no. just plonk the footage in because this rooftop looks so fake. It's ridiculous. To, to be honest, I think the seminal Justice League uh, coming together story is the Justice League animated story. I still remember yes. when that, that episode came out. I mean, it was fantastic, right? They're, they're, mm. they're fighting those aliens. I can't remember their names, right? Uh, uh, Star Rose, I think. I think they were finding the. Was this yeah. Star Rose on that first one? I think so. Yeah, yeah. They, they rescued a, a Martian Manhunter, and it's, they just beautifully put everyone together, and it become a team so seamlessly. Yeah. I wonder. What actually, the, if you rewatch that, yeah. they cut to Malaysia. They do. What? It's like the new stuff, and like, and these aliens have been attacking, and da 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 da, and Malaysia, and it's like, <laughs> you know, and I'm watching like, hey, Pugiba, you done? Fuck you. <laughs> <laughs> no, I was just watching Archer the other day, uh-huh. and he there's one season. I think the third season, he goes on an island. He kind of like runs away to an island. It's freaking Malaysia. Well, supposedly, <laughs> the, well, the Borneola, and they're speaking Bahasa, uh-huh. like the the tribesmen are fighting in Bahasa, okay. and it's so bad Malay. <laughs> <laughs> I never see. Is it, is it is it as bad as Zoolander's Malay? <laughs> I think this is worse actually. I think it's worse. <laughs> wait, wait, does Zoolander have Bahasa though? 
Yeah, when he finally meets the Malaysian Prime Minister. <laughs> the Chinese guy. Yeah, the Chinese. The Chairman Mao looking more fucking. Oh, man. Oh, God, it's so bad. Hey, dude, I think, I think really, okay, whenever you're free, I would really love to have you on again just to talk about the Snyder Cut because I really think I would like okay. to hear your thoughts. Sure. Uh, but I, before, I, I think we should wrap up, but before I end, mm. uh, just a few other things. I want to talk about your wife, though. Ah, because she is, does she have acting experience? Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's how I met her. Right. Uh, you know, she was an actor. Um, what do you call it? Uh, mostly in mainstream stuff, trying out other stuff as well. But then okay. um, she's always been in film. She used to be a producer at Channel V. Okay. Uh, and then after acting, she mainly concentrated on editing, uh, documentary and reality TV and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, so we were always in the same industry. Uh, and for me, it's like, I mean, low budget filmmaking 101, mm. cast the people around you because they're free. <laughs> uh, I, I just happen to be fortunate enough that a lot of the people around me are actors, Yeah, you know, and yeah. for this movie as well, like not just for her, but for everyone, you know, like one thing I was trying to do with my indie films is like, if I'm going to get an actor in and I can't pay them what they should be paid, yeah. I should at least give them the opportunity to play the roles that they don't get to play. Yeah. My wife doesn't get roles like this. Uh, right. Amelia doesn't get roles like this. Yeah. You know, um, it's letting them, you know, really like, look, I'm not even going to tell you how to say shit. Just fucking go. Is, and your, is your dynamic with Amelia Chen, is that the true dynamic you have in Geeks in Malaysia? Is that what we not see in the background? <laughs> is it before you start recording, she cursing you out for not getting your shit together? <laughs> Is this like a secret cry for help? <laughs> Absolutely not. But what was interesting to me was, like, I wrote that character based on a real person. And, oh, shit. Uh, like, yeah, yeah. A real person who literally, that was the first time that I'd felt that much anxiety uh, caused by one person. It was weird. Mm. Like, uh, I dreaded waking up in the morning. Yeah. You know, um, just thinking about her right now, and I was like, fuck, my heart's beating a bit faster. Mm. So I wanted to, there's a thing, never fuck with a writer. They'll, they'll immortalize you. <laughs> uh, so I just didn't use her real name. Yeah. So I created that character because that would have been a great dynamic. What was weird to me is every review later like, is not just raving about the performance, but these are people who, who had experienced the same thing. Yeah. Like they knew exactly what that character was. And I'm like, Wait, there are a lot of bosses like this? That's fucked up. Yo, uh, apparently, yeah, there's a lot. I, I'm from the legal industry. Let me tell you, um, huh. I've experienced many, many people like that. Uh, I've had my fair share of not wanting to get up. You know, you get up, you wake up at 3, 4 in the morning because of anxiety, but then you can't get yourself out yeah. of it because you don't want to face the day. Sucks. Exactly. Okay, but coming back so, to yeah, your it, wife, was, it was surprising to see how many people were going through that knew that character is like that's uh, scary yeah coming back to your wife man she she really did uh -huh. give her a great performance i think there's a lot of there, there was a lot of heart you know that she, she brought a lot oh, yeah. of emo, you know like a lot of emotional heart to the the movie la. and both of you acting together you it really you sold it you both sold it really well and i'm not sure whether that's because the both of you are great actors or it's because of your relationship i mean I think it has to do with that, everything, you know, mm -hmm. because a big part of it as well was like with that character and with the dynamic, the one thing that 
I mean, it's one thing, I don't know if people notice this, but one thing that I've always tried to put in my films uh, is the like cool women, you know, yeah. and different women and especially Malaysian women, you know what I mean? Uh, yeah. And looking at them, uh, especially Malay women, because of the way that Malay women are represented on mainstream TV. Yeah. You know what I mean? Uh, for example, in relationship status, uh, um, what's the character's name? I can't remember the character's name, but the actor, uh, Ruzana Ibrahim, right? Mm-hmm. Was this beautiful actor, right? And beautiful long hair. And it was weird when we cast, I was just like, you know what? She should wear a tudong, right? Mm-hmm. And because I wanted to show that, like how normal it is. And so with uh, my wife's character, Eva's character as well, we wanted to have her in a tudong. Yeah. Um, one, to show that this is normal, right? Mm-hmm. Because there's that perception like, oh, if you're a tudong, you're acting a certain way all the time. Mm-hmm. The other thing was because one thing that fucking pisses us off mm-hmm. is watching like a Malay telly movie and you know, there's a husband and wife dynamic they're the only ones at home and the wife's still wearing a tudong. Right, like, right, right. This is exactly when you take that shit off. You're right, right, right. You know what right. I mean? Like, there's no truth to this whatsoever because why the fuck is she so... I'm sure some people do. Yeah. But the fact of the matter is you're both at home alone and you're a young couple. You're still wearing the tudong? No, she wears it when she's going out to work. And the other thing was to not uh, concentrate on it. Like, this had to be just regular shit. Yeah. But no, to be honest, I did, I did notice it though. I did notice that I thought this was the first time I'd ever seen um, a Malay couple and a Malay uh, female actress being portrayed with and without tudong. Yeah, because I, it's, yeah. it's usually if the actress is wearing a tudong, it's probably because in real life she wears a tudong. Mm. You know, so that's why she's not opening the tudong in the home scenes because, you know, she's not really at home. Yeah. You know yeah. what I mean? Yeah, um, yeah, I understand. So that's usually what happens. And to me, it was just more of like a representation of what these women really like. Yeah, I was talking to my friend, uh, Putri Eleni. Uh, she came over podcast a few episodes back. And she has this uh, Quran uh, study, right? Hmm. They, she calls the group Quran Cuties. Right? Okay. The Q. <laughs> and it's this group of uh, uh, women who discuss the Quran. And hmm. so I was like, does your husband, Atif, does he join? And she's like, no, because most of the time we are without the Tudong. You know, then I'm like, oh, but you're, I mean, they're all at her house. Why, why are y'all not wearing your tudo? And she's like, it's freaking hot. Yeah, it's so, so hot. Of go. course. You know, if I'm home, I'm definitely taking out my tudo. You know? yeah. <laughs> and she was saying, she sometimes finds it a bit funny when uh, Malay women say that it's really cooling. She's like, it's not, you're covering your yeah. ears. It's hot. <laughs> exactly. And like the scene where there's the argument between them when he was supposed to pick her up and she, mm. and he didn't. Like to us, like that was that was a tricky scene for us to write and figure out because the main thing we wanted to show with that was that in any like in any other movie, in any other local representation of those scenes and sequences, the wife would already be pissed with him buying the board. Mm, yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like we wanted to show that this wife is supportive, right? She's cool, she's supportive, but that doesn't mean you can't do the responsibilities you're supposed to do as a husband. Yeah. Right. And that's what that scene needed to be to show like, this is all cool and stuff, but you're still a dad. Right. Yeah. And you are fucking me up and your future child in the process when you don't take care of your responsibilities, yeah. you know? So it was very hard for us because we didn't want it to seem like she is pissed because he wasn't there. Yeah. 
right? She was pissed because she didn't, he didn't do what he's supposed to do yeah. as a father and a husband, yeah. right? It's a very, very like tricky distinction. I mean, I think they're always portrayed as either being supportive in all ways hmm. or they are the inner wife who's not supportive at all. Yeah. But you can be both. You can be... Exactly. I think, I think men put a lot of expectations to provide, hmm. but we fear, and there are expectations, but hmm. your partner obviously wants you to be happy. Yeah. And it's also this thing of like, you know, when it comes to film, uh, for local Malay film, when it comes to representing the wife, hmm. she either has to be the most perfect wife Mm. or the worst wife the one that has to be saved either the one that has to be saved or the one you need to get away from right right Right? and to me i'm like people are not black and white clear and concise Mm. everyone has layers you know so and and the fact that and all of that also came from life as well because during that time when i was incredibly depressed and couldn't figure shit out and feeling like a failure Mm. she was my support you know Mm. have you struggled with depression Oh, I've, I'm, I am, uh, what do you call it, diagnosed, I'm clinical depression. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. Right. Uh, it's uh, since, I think it was 22, when I Shit. finally had it diagnosed properly. Right. Uh, and yeah, I've been dealing with it ever since. It's not fun, but mm. I'm grateful at least that my level of depression is not, in terms of the spectrum, is not as bad as some people. Sure. You know, I've, I've known people with much worse. Uh, and thankfully, I don't have to uh, rely on medication to get through the day, at least right. anymore. You know, I used to be on Prozac and Xanax and Zoloft and Shit. had to take Valium once. That is not fun. Uh, right. Because yeah. I, I think, because um, I've got friends who, who are on medication and, mm. you know, it affects you physically. Like you, you might put on weight, but it also like sort of your quality of life goes down quite a bit because you're not, yeah. it's like you're numb. And yeah, that's, that's, not- that's the thing that a lot of people don't realize with antidepressive, uh, antidepressants. Like people mm-hmm. think that antidepressants just make you better. Yeah. And they absolutely don't. The yeah. only point of an antidepressant is to not make you feel that bad. Yeah. Right? Yeah. yeah. So like something like Prozac, uh, let's say this is a center, this is feeling happy and this is feeling sad. Yeah. Or down here, Prozac gets you to about here. Right? Right. And you're right, that, that's the word, numb. Yeah. And the reason why I got off medication was I realized that I had no opinion of my creativity. Right. It didn't stop me from creating stuff, mm. right? But I'd write something like, hmm, these are words that exist. You wouldn't enjoy it. I can't say I enjoyed it. I can't say I hated it. Right. You know what I mean? Right, right, right. <laughs> like, you're, you feel so... But the point of the medication is to even you out, right? Mm. Like... One thing that to me I find very annoying is like a lot of places, because obviously you make money from the medication. Yeah. You know? Yeah. A lot of places don't tell you that this is the thing to stop you feeling this bad right now. Yeah, yeah. And you need to get off it later. I wonder whether this is a problem specific to Malaysia because I've had like I said, I have a few friends who are on antidepressants and Oh no. I mean in America it's worse. Right. They have a culture of taking, like exactly. Xanax is like a, uh, almost like Panadol. You know, it's ridiculous. And the thing they don't tell you is the dosage stops working as much. Yeah. And it becomes an opioid problem. Yeah. And, and I've had friends who have been put on antidepressants and then they go and, you know, they, they want to wean off or they want to get out of it. 
mm-hmm. and then they go for their checkup and they talk to their clinical, I don't know, therapist or whatever, mm-hmm. and they say, "I'm feeling much better. I wanna, I think I should yeah. reduce my dosage." And the, the the so-called doctors will say, "Look, yeah. if it's working for you, that means we're doing something right, and we should increase your dosage." Oh, is insane. I have a friend who's in Sabah. The doctor actually said that to her. That's, That's crazy. That is not right. I mean, only very serious cases should have daily medication just to exist. Yeah. And even then, it is it is a very tricky thing because you have to see what kind of dosages work, what kind of medication works, yeah. and whether you can still function in what you're supposed to do day by day. And then once you start taking, it's not for for many of these drugs. You can't just stop it immediately. That and could that's the thing. I tried. It's uh, it, like that's that's what I did, and it was. Uh, Basically, I had to make sure I was in a situation so that I could do it, um, yeah. you know, because if like I still had a very busy lifestyle, it'd be very difficult to do. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I managed to wean myself off of it. Um, to me, the, the harder one was actually uh, some of the other stuff that was to help sleeping. Right. You know, because right. sleeping pills are no fucking joke. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And I still suffer insomnia. Um, but... I'm just I'm I'm glad that I don't have to take antidepressants. When things get really bad, sometimes I will go to my therapist and yeah. you know explain what it is and see what she would suggest. But apart from that, do you do you have you like recognize your triggers or are there things that in particular trigger you or do they just come randomly or no? Uh, there are things that can trigger me, but it's less about the triggers. It's more about uh, being aware of how I'm reacting. Okay. You know what I mean? Like, you know, before I was diagnosed and before I started going to therapy and stuff like that, it was more about, um, you know, it's learning how to notice it, you know? Because when you notice it, then you're aware of it. And then you can try and put measures to make sure you don't keep... Because here's the thing, depression isn't just like, boom, you're fucked up straight away, Mm, right? mm. To me, at least for me, my experience with it is that what causes it is a little seed, Right? And if you let it grow, mm. eventually you'll be at the bottom of the depths of depression. Right? I, I hope you and don't it's mind. it's just noticing the seed. Like yeah. once you notice like that is making me feel these things that if I leave it unchecked by Friday, I will be a complete wreck. Yeah. yeah. And I guess that's why they say meditating is so important, right? Recognizing uh, yeah. the way your body is moving. I hope you don't mind me asking. Uh, sure. and feel, feel free to say no. But how, how does your depression, what, what are the manifestations? Because I think a lot of people, to be honest, even my school friends, not many people talk about these things. And uh, sometimes they, some, some people, they use the word depression too liberally when they're actually feeling mm. sad. Some yeah. people do the opposite where they actually are really depressed, but they just think that they are feeling sad. And yeah. so I was just wondering, how does it manifest for you? Like, how does it actually, I mean, as a, me, yeah, how does it feel dep- like actually? Okay, depression to me, the difference between being depression and sad. Mm. Sad has a reason. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah. Depression might have a reason for triggering it. But mm. when there's absolutely no reason for you to be sad and you're still feeling sad and you mm. cannot explain it, that to me is depression. All right. You know, where the experience is there devoid of the rationale behind it. Mm-hmm. Okay, so um, you know when I'm depressed, I know it because 
anything I do, everything I see, everything I feel just feels terrible, you know, yeah. about myself. Um, what do you call it? Uh, a good example would be, for example, the beginning of COVID last year, right? Yeah. The first few months. Uh, I could see it coming. I could see that feeling of dread coming. Mm -hmm. And I also knew like, if I give myself a moment to think about it, mm -hmm. then it's gonna hit. So mm -hmm. I was constantly keeping myself busy to make sure that shit was okay for us for COVID and da 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 and the health and safety and making sure we're getting paid and all of that. But yeah, that one moment where I allowed myself to think about it a little bit more about how this situation makes me feel, right? So you start thinking about like, I haven't got a job for the next three months lined up. And then that just snowballs to, how am I going to pay the bills? Mm. How am I going to do this? How am I going to make sure there's food on the table? Right? That snowballs onto, what kind of a man are you that you can't provide these things? Right? Mm. Snowballs to, what the fuck have you done with your career that you're not set up for this? Mm. Snowballs to, if you were good at what you did, this would not be a problem. Right. right? Snowballs to, you're a piece of shit. And everything is fucked. And that snowballs even further. You see what I mean? So, like, all those thoughts, they're not, you know, are they justified thoughts for feeling bad about yourself? Yes. Are they valid thoughts? Not really. You know, but you started that trail now. And, you're, and once you start that trail, it's really hard to get out. You can bullshit yourself into telling yourself, no, positive thinking, blah, 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 da, da, da. Positive thinking without thinking positively is not positive thinking. Yeah. You yeah. know what I mean? Yep, yep, yep. The only way positive thinking works is if you are thinking positively. You can't feel like shit and tell yourself everything's going to be okay. Yep. But at the same time, you need to tell yourself everything's going to be okay because eventually you'll believe it and everything will be okay. Yeah. It's just so hard to convince yourself of it. It's almost, it's almost like it's not grounded in any reality, like, I suppose. No. And that's the reason why it's so frustrating. And that's yeah. the reason why I feel like everyone pushes depression away mm -hmm. because you can't, you can't uh, rationalize it. Right. Right? Right, 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 right. And when you can't rationalize it, you also don't feel right talking to people about it. Yeah. You know, when you talk to people that don't really understand depression, and maybe you also don't understand depression, are you really going to have a conversation and say, I've been feeling sad. Why? I don't know. Yeah. The other person is going to say, well, you know, either do something to make yourself happy or what have you got to be sad about? Yeah. You know, which believe me, anyone who has depression has asked themselves that question. What yeah. do I have to be sad about? Nothing. Then why do I feel like killing myself right now? Yeah. You know? It's, it's, it's strange because it is a purely emotional response that doesn't have any logic to it. So yeah. it's very hard to think about it rationally. Yeah. I, I've, been, I've been thinking a lot about, um, I'm very, very curious about transgenderism. I was thinking about this and hmm. it's not really PC, but whatever. I was thinking about transgenderism and what's the difference between transgender, transgenderism and body dysmorphia. Body dysmorphia. Because I was thinking, okay. you know, both have to do with you not feeling like yourself. Hmm. But we decry body dysmorphia, we don't cry transgenderism, right? So I was hmm. thinking about that, then I was like reading up, trying to figure out what's the difference here, what's the distinction. And then I read something and I thought it made a lot of sense. It said that it says that body dysmorphia is where you look in the mirror 
And however much you change, you're never happy. It's like when the carpenter singer, Karen Carpenter, yeah. right? She had, she had anorexia. Yeah. So she, whenever she looked in the mirror, it was not grounded in reality. She yeah. would never be happy until she died. Yes. And it had no grounding in reality whatsoever. Hmm. And so I, I think in that way, I understand what you're saying about depression. It's that it's not grounded in any, it will never be better. It will yeah. never, you, it, 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 nothing you can do externally will change the yeah. internal, at least for that moment, right? Yeah. It's, and the moments can last days, weeks, months, or maybe just a few hours. So uh, how, did, how, how did you get through it then? I mean, besides the, the medication, were there, okay. was there anything else that really helped you? Um, I mean, making a conscious decision to get off the medication to me was the first steps in trying to make myself better. Mm. Right. So I'm taking an active decision to do something. You know what I mean? Um, that helped. And also, right. And one of the things I think if you're suffering depression as well, like, and you're a creative person. Um, you should give yourself, like if you're feeling depressed, you should give yourself those moments to create, but not show anyone, right? Okay. Like if you're going through a depressive state and you express that in word or song or whatever, and then some random motherfucker on the internet tells you it sucks, that's just not going to help. Yeah. But the actual act of creativity does help. You know, mm-hmm. there's a song I wrote um, during that period whilst I was on a medication called uh, Sharon said, um, and it's about that whole process <laughs> about uh, being depressed and meeting a therapy, a therapist and them calling you on your bullshit. And you are like vulnerable for the first time in your life. Mm. Right. To be able to write that song down helped, you know, mm. um, did anyone hear it? Hear my version of it? Maybe two or three people that I trusted. Right. Mm. And later on, when I was in uh, my band Rolling Sixes, and I wasn't the vocalist, but I was the guitarist. So my vocalist was singing the song, you know, um, and people did hear it as ages later. That song is still existed. Right. Mm. But that song as well has exactly how I was feeling at that time expressed. Like I have a, a moment to look at, you know, so I have a comparison of how far I've come. You know, but also creativity. Creativity is a great tool for releasing and expressing yourself in ways that, you know, maybe aren't so traditional, mm-hmm. right? Like they, they do it in, uh, you know, as a form of therapy for major cases of schizophrenia. And, you know, when you see those, those drawings that people who are suffering schizophrenia or like really severe dementia, like they haven't written a single word, but you, have so much more insight into their brain. Yeah, because they're and what they're feeling. Like they expressed it visually. Yeah, and like, they're, they're externalizing their internal, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And the the to me the biggest uh thing that can keep getting you into depression is not expressing it. Right? You know, because if you don't express it, then the thoughts then you're gonna ha- keep having that conversation in your head and the conversation doesn't end. You take it out and you put it onto something else. Right. And it's like, there you go. There's the conversation right there. That's what we were thinking. That's how fucked up I felt. Mm-hmm. I can put that aside now. Right. And try and think of something else. 
Yeah, I mean that, that's mm-hmm. a, the very same reason. I think if anybody goes through uh, their first like heartbreak, they suddenly become poets. Exactly, you're trying to figure out a way to like explain yeah. this is what this person makes me feel like, mm-hmm. and there's also a thing like to me. Um, I have a thing when it comes to writing where I don't like writing about. Okay, no, I tell lie. If I'm gonna write about, let's say, a breakup, mm. I may write about it when it happens, but I know it's shit. Mm. It is just a, a full expression, and the emotion is raw. Yeah. Right. Like I, I like to write about a breakup once I'm over it because I have context. Okay. You know, so like with Kickflip as well, that's written after I've kind of figured shit out. You know, I'm not a hundred percent, but I've started figuring shit out. There's another script that my producer is actually shopping around. The same producer for Kickflip, he's shopping around um, that I wrote before Kickflip, around that time when I was really feeling like a failure and all of this. And the overriding emotion at that time was anger. Like I was just pissed with the world. Yeah, you know. Um, that's one thing that people often do. You just channel it into a different emotion. So then it's a different energy. Mm-hmm. Anger is not probably not the best energy to put it into, but yeah. So it was, um, it was basically a Malaysian American history X. <laughs> okay. It was a skinhead uh, movie. It was basically a skinhead going to a therapist. Uh, I was like, okay, no, I'm going to show some fucked up racial bullshit. <laughs> da, 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 da. And it's such an angry script. Yeah. It's ridiculously angry. And it's weird because my producer really likes it and he wants to shop it, but I'm glad that he's shopping it now mm. because if I made it at that time, it would have come from a very different place. Mm. You know, I have the perspective now like, wow, I, I was fucking pissed when I wrote this, but mm. some interesting shit came out of it. Yeah. You know, and of course it needs a couple of rewrites, but yeah. But if I had made it at that time, yeah. I, the intention would have been wrong. It would have been all heart and no sort of mind to... Yeah, because you you have to you have to take a moment to step back. I feel like that's the because I'm a huge fan of comedy and the mechanics of comedy as well, mm. right? And I kind of started out writing funny shit because that was the easiest way to gauge reactions whether someone likes it or not. Uh, can I just say that Chipla is damn funny? Ah, thank you it very much. It is damn damn funny. It is really really funny. <laughs> Thanks. Yeah, yeah. But the thing about that's the thing about comedy. Comedy is always about taking that step back and observing it from all angles, yeah. right? And that's where you get, that's usually where you get the interesting shit. Mm. You know what I mean? When you're writing it, when you're, let's say you break up with a girl and you write a song about it. Obviously, it's a song, the song's going to be ups- about you being upset, mm. right? Now, you give that same moment to a comedian <laughs> and the comedian might say, you know, when you cry, you make a really fucked up sound. It's kind of funny. <laughs> you know what I mean? yeah. <laughs> Like, you need that distance to be able to see all the angles. Like, when it comes to breakups, like, when you have that distance, you're like, wow, I was a dick too. Mm. You know, or she has a point. Or yeah. maybe, maybe when the breakup happened, you uh, idolized her so much and thought that it was all about you. And then when you have that distance, you're like, wait up, fuck yeah. that bitch. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, either way it could happen, but you need that perspective. Right. So, and because that perspective always gives the more interesting story. I think when we break up with someone, we either blame the other person or blame ourselves. And then only when time goes by, you, 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 you might still blame the other person. You might still blame yourself, but it, there's a little bit of nuance and it becomes more like, 
in any case, it just was a case of not, not, it was yeah. not meant to be, right? It didn't work at the time. Yeah. Like my, my favorite feeling is going to be fucked up to hear. <laughs> my favorite feeling of all is after not seeing an ex for a long time, seeing them again and going, huh, I don't think she's that hard anymore. <laughs> <You know? laughs> she's objectively attractive. <laughs> But yeah. I am not attracted to you. It is a great feeling to have. <laughs> you know, like when you finally have that Disney, you're like, that booty ain't that much. <laughs> nah, I lucked out. <laughs> and, and it feels like you scored a jackpot with your, your, your wife now. Uh, her name oh, is Eva, her. right? Eva, right? Eva Imanina. Um, yeah. I love it to bits. She's the most awesome woman I know on this planet. How long have you all been married for? This is how awesome she is. We both don't remember our wedding date. Uh, <laughs> I think about are we coming up to, we got married in 2016. Right. So what year is it now? 2021. 2021. Five years. Hey, congrats. Five years. Thanks, congrats. dude. <laughs> oh, man. I feel like we've spoken about a lot of things, bro. Mm. Um, I mean, hey, if you ever want to have a chat again, let me know. This is fun. I, I definitely, I'll definitely want to do that. <laughs> um, I definitely want to talk to you after um, you watch the Snyder Cut, because I'm really curious to okay. get your take. And also, I think we've, Kind of like spoken a lot about Chipla uh, uh, and Kickflip, but even talking about, maybe talking more about, another time talking about Chua or all those sure. other stuff you've done, or even your, 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 your music process and your creative process, sure. I think uh, uh, it will benefit a lot of people. Uh, I normally end with uh, like a re- recommendation or talk. I thought you were going to end with uh, the interview that was made famous by Bernard Pivot. <laughs> What's your? Oh, we should do that. Oh <laughs> shit, we should do that. Okay, okay, wait. Let me pull it up. Let me pull it up. Let me pull it up. Oh my okay. goodness. Okay. Let me pull it up. Hold on. Hold oh, on. I've always wanted to do this. <laughs> oh well, questionnaire. Yes, I just had to type in questionnaire with a B, and then it came up. <laughs> I'm not going to be able to introduce it like how James Lipton does it. <laughs> you know you're going to try to yeah. imitate James Lipton? No. Yeah, okay. but in any case, this is uh, a, a 10 questions that originally came from a French series called Boulon de Culture. I don't know whether that's right. But hosted by Bernard Pivot. I don't know whether I pronounced that right. I tried my best. Uh, but yeah, James Lipton uses it uh, on every episode, the end of every episode mm-hmm. of Inside the Actor Studio. Uh, so before the, the Q&A opens up with the, the person. But anyway... Uh, okay, number one, what is your favorite word? Well, wow, now that I've, now that I've actually been asked, it's like, holy <laughs> shit, this is tough. Ooh, favorite word? Uh, cool beans. Cool beans. Yeah, what I, is- don't, I don't even know where I got it from. Later on, when I saw Hot Rod, I'm like, oh, they say it too. <laughs> I have no idea where I got it from, but I, I say it so much, it's nuts. Nice. Uh, what is your least favorite word? Should. That one I know. Should. I fucking hate the word should. In any you should context? have done this. You should have done that. Right. Like, sometimes it's acceptable, but to me, the word should has no place other than to make someone feel bad that they didn't think about something they should have done. Yeah. yeah. You know yeah. what I mean? Yeah. Like, all you have to do to replace is say, next time, could you do this instead? And mm-hmm. it doesn't feel as bad. But if you fuck up and someone says you shouldn't have fucked up, it's like, no shit, Sherlock. I know I shouldn't have fucked up. You know? <laughs> so it's, I, I hate that word. Like, especially people like, oh, you should use this. You should use that. You should do this. And like, you should shut the fuck up. That's what you should do. <laughs> uh, or, or if 
you get that. I told you so. It's basically emotional hostage. Uh, emotional yeah. hostage. Yeah. Okay, cool. Uh, what turns you on creatively, spiritually, or emotionally? Creatively, spiritually, emotionally. Yeah. Oh, I didn't know that last bit. It usually says what turns you on. I was going to say a butt. Yeah. <laughs> I, like, I like nice, I, li- I like big butt. Uh, um, <laughs> although what turns me, okay. What really turns me on my heart and soul, because a girl could have a cute butt or whatever, yeah. but uh, talent and personality. You know, talent more than anything, talent really turns me on. Um, nice. Like, and, but personality as well, a good person. You could be beautiful as hell, but the second I see that you're an asshole, I'm like, wow, you got ugly real fast. Yeah. No, no, I've, I've had that. I mean, I've spoken with my guy friends and we've, as you grow older, you sort of realize that you could meet a chick that is super hot. Yeah. But the moment you hear them talk shit, yeah. you know, it's amazing, you know, how, how unattractive a person can become and how oh, yeah. someone you don't really give a good shot when you talk to them and they become, you realize how yeah. interesting they are, they become so damn attractive. Exactly. Right? Yeah. You know, personality and talent go a long way. Definitely. Okay. What is your favorite curse word? Cock smoker. Uh, I've never heard it said anywhere else but in a Kevin Smith film. And to me, it's so descriptive. Yeah. Like, I use motherfucker a lot and fuck, obviously. I love those words. But if I had to pick one, because it's just so unique, cock smoker. It's not even <laughs> cocksucker, it's cock smoker. You know? Yeah, yeah. Like, it's so descriptive. I love it. <laughs> okay, what sound or noise do you love? Uh, the sound of a woman really laughing really laughing like i hate the you know it's not even i mean it's very prevalent in asia but also in the rest of the world in civilized society a lady shouldn't laugh yeah you know so i hate the the like fuck off you like laugh that's the first thing that attracted me to my wife like when she laughs she fucking laughs i love it love that sound nice uh okay what sound or noise do you hate that is uh What's that um, big sound? Which a scraping sound, like, like chalkboard, uh, chalkboard, or even metal scraping on metal? Uh, like just thinking about it is making yeah, my yeah, yeah. blue Roma go up. Like, yeah, yeah. Uh, hate that get sound. Get it? Get it? I totally get you. Um, what profession other than your own would you like to attempt? Um, back in the day, I would have said teacher. Yeah. Um, because I, I've always felt that teaching is very, it's a noble profession. Mm. Um, and I've learned, like, there are certain teachers in my life that without their existence, I wouldn't be where I am today. Sure. Just because they recognize something. But the, the flip side to that is, like, I've already taught. So I don't know if that can be applied. Because mm. it's something that I've done. Uh, I was lecturing at Sunway uh, sure. end of last year. Um, mm. So now that that, like, I've gotten to do that, um, any other profession? Actually, carpenter sounds fun. Mm. You know, like nice. uh, working with shit. I do like just physically doing stuff sometimes because it really clears your brain. So yeah, I think I'm going to say carpenter. Nice. Mm. Uh, what profession would you not like to do? Jizz mopper. <laughs> Is that a profession? Back when there were, you know, like, um, and they still exist, you know, nude booths or like little booths where you can watch pornos, uh, you know, someone has to clean it up. Yikes. I, and 
that is not something that anyone should do for minimum wage. Oh man. Okay, thinking about it freaks me out. Um, <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Do you, have you ever listened to uh, Joe Rogan? Yeah, on and off. So in the early days of Joe Rogan, he used to one of his sponsors was the Flashlight. Oh yeah. Flashlight you know? sponsored Kevin Smith as well. Yeah, exactly. And so I think I can't remember where I heard but somebody was talking about it and just, you know, you have to clean that flashlight. Dude, I talked about it on Geeks in Malaysia. Oh, it might have been you. I might have, yeah. <laughs> I might have heard it from you. <laughs> Cleaning a flashlight suddenly makes you appreciate a vagina so much more. <laughs> like, oh boy. Oh man. Okay, that's funny. All right. Um, if heaven exists, and this is always my favorite question, if heaven exists, what would you like to hear God say when you arrive at the pearly gates? Wow, that's a tricky one. I don't know how people answer this one because you, you know, it's like you want something witty or something real. Um, actually, you know what? If I got into heaven, if God exists and I got into heaven, it would be cool. It's like, surprise, you made it. Because <laughs> I've been told my whole life I'm going to hell. So if I get there, it's like, oh, shit. Oh, <laughs> uh, man. Okay, we're done, man. Thank questions. you very much. Thank you hey, very much. Hey, thank you so much for coming on. I really, really enjoyed this conversation. Um, really wishing you all the best. Uh, do you want to do your plugs? Um, okay, sure. Yeah, uh, just a couple of stuff to plug. Uh, obviously, um, if you haven't yet, uh, please check out Kickflip um, and uh, Chipla and a whole bunch of my other movies. They're very yeah. Uh, Kickflip is only nine ninety to watch, and so is Chua. And uh, Chipla and Relationship Status are available for free. Um, the, those movies are also available on Mubi, uh, the Malaysian uh, version of Mubi, mm-hmm. uh, including Showdown. Showdown's there as well. The only movie on the, uh, Chipla and Relationship Status, unfortunately, aren't available on Mubi, but they are available on Kinidia. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, and especially on Kinidia, like. Yeah, it's because Kenny Dia is like a little site that my friend made. Please show the man some support, but also yeah. show movie some support as well because they've been gracious enough to give us a home. Uh, we also have a podcast, Geeks in Malaysia, which we try and release every Thursday unless <laughs> life takes over. Mm-hmm. So there's that. And also my YouTube channel. Um, and it's the same for all my social medias. Uh, my ad is Kaimano, K-H-A-I-M-A-N-O. You can find me on YouTube, Twitter, Instagram, uh, maybe Facebook, but... For reals, I'm not a fan of Facebook. If you want to interact and follow me, Instagram is probably the best place to go. Uh, anything else I got left to plug? Not really. I think that's about it. Oh, and also, um, please check out the Geeks in Malaysia YouTube channel because you started putting up videos more regularly. Um, yeah, hey, your new setup looks good, man. I thanks, it man. Yeah, yeah, it looks yeah. really, really good. Um, okay, uh, thank you so much for coming on, Kai. I really appreciate it. To all those listening, uh, you know, Lockdown is uh, kind of uh, <laughs> semi, uh, but don't go crazy. La. You know, I heard, uh, did you hear about that Bangsa fight yesterday? Dude, the amount of weird crime that's been going on right now, I can't even keep up. Dude, it's crazy that the WhatsApp video circulated. Um, hmm. There was like a gang, Indian gang fight in Bangsa. Oh, another gang uh, fight. Yeah, and these two guys got jumped and they got sliced with uh, uh, beer bottles and knives. Right, yeah. and so they actually have a video of this guy. He's he's no t-shirt. He's just blurred all over, and his friend trying to CPR him. 
Oof. And just in Tamil saying like he's dying, he's dying. He's somebody shouting, "Keep your eyes awake! Keep your eyes awake!" And they are on calling the ambulance, trying to get the ambulance to come over. And this guy just dies in front of Seven Eleven in Bangsa. Holy shit! It's a crazy thing. It's so so insane. So anyway, I just want to say I don't think any of my listeners will be doing anything like that. But don't go crazy. Please I stay ad- safe. <laughs> yeah, I admit when you know the first night. The pubs open till twelve. I was out, but yeah. let's 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 stay calm. Let's stay, stay calm. Please keep safe and uh, stop filling up IKEA. I want to get some shit. The wall is still filling the place up. Yeah, oh, damn it. Stay healthy. Uh, stay safe and stay good. And Satanize and keep your masks on. <laughs> and we are done. Bam. Okay. Thank you very much, sir. Hey, I had I had a, a great time, man. Thanks so much. Thank um, you. Same here. Uh, I'm definitely, if you're a game, I'm definitely going to ask for a, a, a sequel to this. Sure. Just hit me up anytime. Unfortunately, though, I got to go off because, uh, yeah. what do you call it? I wasn't expecting to be talking this long and I haven't much yet. So, <laughs> hey, no worries, no worries. Uh, sorry for sorry keeping you. That. No worries, man. This was hey. really, really a lot of fun. Thanks hey. so much, dude. Take care. Take care. Have fun, man. All right. You too. Bye. Bye. Bye.